How's the food, sweetheart? Where's the stuff? The stuff is here now. Great new day sensation. Light and free now. Get you elevation. Enough is never enough. Enough is never enough of the stuff. The stuff. The taste that makes you hungry for more. Who are Moses and Jesus, really? Sacrifices to your God are nothing new. Are you going to tell me all those people are meant to die? Why did you attack all those people? God told me to. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. My name is Patrick Rapol. My name is Jim Laskowski. Guess what? What? We have a very special guest. Do we? Do we really? Mm-hmm. It's true. Okay. Fun. Who? You might remember him from the episodes where we talked about uh, a guy named Walter Hill. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember Walter Hill. Yeah. As well as Catherine Bigelow. Very good. Say hello to Mike Flynn. Please welcome our favorite. What's going on, guys? Right, Mike, is this your first time on Oprah? <laughs> that's, that's, that's my new approach to introducing That's your new guests. approach is to it's do that. Actually, it's actually my first time on the Morton Downey Jr. show. Yeah. <laughs> did, he, did he introduce things like that? I thought, I thought Morton Downey Jr. would have people already on stage so he could right off the bat start yelling at them. That is true. And um, if you've ever seen Predator 2... The character that he plays is not that much of an extension of the real Morton Downey Jr. Yeah. I yeah. started to watch Predator 2, but I was just, I don't know, I, I, I'm kind of tired of the whole Jamaican drug lord stereotype. It wasn't kind of, a great, it was not a great period of time in like the late 80s, early 90s, where um, the predominant uh, uh, race or ethnicity of crime was Jamaican. Yeah. Well, well, let me just play it straight that Mark for Death is the best movie <laughs> to cover that subject. I want yeah, um, I think I've watched all the Steven Seagal movies up until... What was the one in the snow? On Deadly Ground? You probably... Well, Under Siege 2 isn't that... Is good. Oh, and it's yeah, got, yeah. That's, that's actually got an actor that I'm going to be discussing a little later. I think I know who that is. And, yes. Um... And I, I got to tell you, it's a pleasure to be back on here. It's like hosting Saturday Night Live and coming <laughs> back to host it. It's yeah. it's like home, you know. It's, it's just like Saturday Night Live. It's thrown together haphazardly, and it's way too fucking long. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's really there's and there's two musical moments. Mm-hmm. And there's two musical moments. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Jim, we don't really have any business to take care of, do we? Not particularly. I want to congratulate Film Junk, even though I'm a month late. I should have done this sooner, but I wanted to congratulate them on reaching their 500th episode. Oh, sure. And also they have sold out on their USB flash drives, which contain all 500 episodes. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, I agree. Maybe we'll do that once we once we reach 500 episodes. Uh, you we're gonna have to, you're going to have to uh, negotiate some points on those sales okay. on my episodes. 
Yeah, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Well, yeah, there's going to be residuals. It's going to be like when you are the bit part in Die Hard with a Vengeance. You're the, like the one cop who's like, oh, boy. Like, you see, he has that one line, and then just because he had that one line and because they play that movie uh, on cable every other week, then, like, <laughs> then it just means every month he gets a check for 11 cents. And that is basically going to be the Mike Flynn Director's Club bump right there. <laughs> I don't want to knock you into another tax bracket, but you will be getting, like, yeah, 11 cent checks. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think every time you laugh, you should get some residuals, too. Because sometimes it lasts. That's no good. That's no good. It's, the, uh, it's, the, it, it's that sketch from uh, Monty Python where all the actors suddenly start talking just so they'll get paid more, and then they start doing stunts apropos of nothing, <laughs> so they have to get paid for doing stunts because it's and live television. Didn't you know that for every bad pun, I get a quarter? Oh, is that why you do this? Yes, exactly. You know, I would give you $100 a month if you stopped doing it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I know that only covers – I know at a quarter a pun, that only covers like half of your, your pun income, but I would gladly – Spend a hundred dollars out of my own pocket if you would stop doing terrible puns. I would like to give a shout out to another podcast they did the last one that I was on. Oh yeah, um, on the Eric's Antoine Network, uh, the Eric's Antoine Network WordPress.com. You should all check it out. Uh, I did a podcast with Mr. Antoine and the one and only Jason Pollock on the summer of 1989, and I made a pretty heinous pun. Uh, this this one, the pun police did come out. Uh, we were talking about the film Young Einstein, a film <laughs> I've never seen. But I described the fact that Warner Brothers tried to make their next Crocodile Dundee, and they ended up looking like serious yahoos. <laughs> Get it? Get it? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, of course, uh, Pollock, who's one of the most awesome outspoken people I know, is like to me, ladies and gentlemen, the ghost of Gene Shalit. Yeah. And I'm like, Gene Shalit's still alive. And he's like, ladies, and then louder, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the ghost of Gene Shalit. Have you ever read a review that man's written? He's dead inside. Shining is a horror picture. It cost $18 million. That's part of the horror. The rest is the wasting of excellent performances by Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and the gall of calling it a masterpiece in the advance ads. Kubrick has confused horror with shock. A whack in the belly with an axe is shock. And finally, I just want to give out a really quick shout-out to a newish podcast that I binge-listened to called The Do-Over, in which a panel of uh, film freaks take a look at the five nominees for Best Picture for one particular year and decide if the Academy chose the right one. And if they didn't, what films deserve to be nominated for that year? And I just think it's a really cool podcast. Um, and they've been featured in the AV Club, and the host, Jamie, is just having a lot of success, and I might be on it in the months to come. So just, uh, I, I don't normally say, hey, everybody, go listen to this, but I'm my endorsement is high for this one. So is the premise of that podcast that they look at the marketing campaigns that go into who bought the Oscar? <laughs> or, or are they going on the false premise that the Academy uh, votes with the films that they think are best? Um, yeah. The more the latter. They don't, yeah. they don't really focus on... So it's, uh, a, it's a fantasy podcast. Mostly. Yeah. <laughs> a world of fiction in which the Academy Awards mean anything uh, mm-hmm. and are based 
on anything other than money spent by production company. It's just like, you know, what if we hosted, or I mean, what if we hosted, what if we chose the nominees and, of course, Do the Right Thing wins in 1989 over Driving Miss Daisy, you know? That's how it works. That that would have been the brightest timeline if that had happened. I yeah. would have been so psyched, and it's it still stings that that wasn't nominated for anything right. past supporting or original screenplay. I only want the worst movies to win Academy. I think if we <laughs> could get enough years in a row where the worst movies only won Academy Awards, people would stop watching it, and that would be my favorite timeline. Well, I, I gotta tell you, they disagree. got on a hot streak in the mid two thousands, and yeah, that was a problem. I hated it. I I was so <laughs> mad when No Country for Old Men won Best Oscar because I wanted them to give it to I don't know what 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 crappy movie came out it that was, year. Jumper. Right, was, I wanted them to give Jumper Best Picture. The Patrick first, Jumper wasn't even eligible the year No Country for Old Men was up for it. Okay, well, whatever was eligible. 2006? Uh, 2007 was No Country, There Will Be Blood, Juno, Michael Clayton, and yeah. Atonement. All of those are too good. All those are too good. I mm-hmm. want only the worst films to win. I want to burn I want to burn the Academy to the ground. So I should w- the Razzies and the Oscars switch? I think the Razzies shouldn't exist. I think the Razzies is more deplorable than the Oscars. I but I, I don't think either of them should exist. But the Razzies should especially... I, I only want the worst things to happen to these people who uh, believe in the these institutions enough to belong to them. Mm-hmm. Hey, mm-hmm. you know you know who's a Razzie's winner? Kirk Cameron. Uh, I, I, what? Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron is a Razzie winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, hold on one second. I, I want to. Martin Scorsese. I Martin hope Scorsese, not. Martin no, Scorsese he's... won the Razzie for Worst Picture for Goodfellas. I will tell you that he's a nominee, but he did not win, sadly. And that's our friend, George Pan Cosmatos. Is that our friend? He is a friend, because he comes up in every fucking episode I do with you guys. That's true. That's true. Was he an Iron Eagle? Uh, no, he is the director of such cinematic masterpieces as Cobra, Monsters Blood Part Two of Unknown Origin, Cobra, Ivan, and uh, Cobra. Very good, thank you. I wanted uh, I wanted the Gods Must Be Crazy Part Two to win Best Picture <laughs> this year. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Blood Diamond was originally called The Gods Must Be Crazy Part 3. Yeah, see, that's what I needed to. That's what I need. I need only the worst things to happen. Hey, Jim. Hey. How about we get into what we watched this week? Mm-hmm. Like leaving Las Vegas Contamination or basket case And like Halloween Resurrection The Last Exorcism or April Fool's Day Cause these, these are the films what we watch this week, let's talk about. 
the last unit collaborate for the Christmas story. Let's talk about Leprechaun 3. Discuss Rashomon, it's not too late. I can start with our guest, Mike Flynn. Uh, what did you watch recently? Okay, so I got a few movies that I can talk about. It's is going back a few weeks because I've been in the swing of our focal director. But the last film I went to see theatrically was Kingsman, The Secret Service. I heard the good things new, about this. It is the new geek movie du jour, a lot of hype. You got Matthew Vaughn who's coming off the X-Men first class and kick ass. It's fucking brilliant. Um, (laughs) Vaughn has proven himself as somewhat of an auteur. He has the same sort of pop culture awareness that Tarantino has in terms of referencing other things. And he also has the gleeful ultraviolence and European satirical view of America that Paul Verhoeven has brought to several of his films. Oh, boy. What this film adds that kick-ass nor first-class nor layer cake have done, he does something with slapstick that is in the vein of Mel Brooks or early Woody Allen. Oh. There are sight gags galore in this film that made me laugh my ass off and I was I was obsmacked by some of the things that happened in it. But here's Remember a question. I do have a quick question for you, Mike. And that is this. Does the action sequences have one of my uh, greatest pet peeves? And that is slow motion and then speeding it up. Speed ramping, that, are you talking about? Yes. It does have a little speed ramping, mm. but... I will tell you that it has a front runner for the best action sequence of the year, which has some Benny Hill-esque sped up shit going on. Oh, God. Um, All I will say... All right. Remember in Miller's Crossing when Albert Finney kills all those guys and you think, why did this man never make an action movie outside of Wolfen? I remember Albert Finney doing that in Annie, but... yeah. Well, Colin Firth gets a moment like that in this action sequence, and if my estimates are correct, more people die at his hands. Academy Award winner Colin Firth kills more people in five minutes than Keanu Reeves kills in all of John Wick. Uh Uh-oh. And I, I was electrified by the sequence. I don't want to spoil it, but it's, 
it's a fucking brilliant scene. Um, it's got great use of music. Like the moment that it grabbed me was you're you're not even at the beginning of the movie. You're at the stu- the production logos, and you start to hear the uh, "I want my MTV," and I'm like, no fucking way. They're they're using that. I I, I can't wait for this. And then it drops all of these uh, cues. There is an homage in one scene that simultaneously combines references to The Spy Who Loved Me and Nine and a Half Weeks. Okay. That's the kind of speed that Matthew Vaughn's operating on. I heard a lot of people referring to it in terms of James Bond, and as a person... Uh, as a person who doesn't watch any James Bond movies, or like I've seen the Bronson ones, but I don't really care for him at all, uh-huh. Brosnan rather, uh, do you? Is it necessary to like have a working uh, opinion and knowledge of James Bond to get what's going on in the Kingsman, or is it just sort of like, or is it, or is that just sort of meta layer, just a treat for people who are into that stuff, and it's yeah. and it doesn't detract from it. It's the latter, actually. Um, if you've never seen a James Bond movie, you're not missing out on anything. Obviously, in my opinion, you are missing out by not watching any James Bond movies. But it is something that does pay tribute to it, but doesn't dumb it down. Like, I'm watching this movie, and I'm thinking, like, this is like real-life Grand Theft Auto or real-life Saints Row. This is fucking insane. And oh. I want to tell you... the. MVP of this movie is not Firth, it's not Taron Egerton, who is the lead, who's actually great in it. Um, that goes to Samuel L. Jackson. Um, oh, no. Samuel L. Jackson has done so many great movies, and he is a guy that I think can be lumped with people like Hatman and Michael Caine, and uh, Michael Keaton, where they always give a great performance. They don't care if they have the lead role. They always give it their all. And I don't think I've seen Samuel L. Jackson do a comedic performance, like, full-on the way he does it in this since Loaded Weapon 1. I I knew you were going to go there. (laughs) Um, There is a moment that involves the funniest use of fast food product placement since Demolition Man Mm. that had me fucking choking from how hard I was laughing and his character is it further deconstructs the whole Bond villain idea that Mike Myers started with Dr. Evil and Austin Powers in that he's the villain Valentine, that's the name of the character he's the villain but He's a very stupid, regretful, paranoid, okay, maybe I shouldn't have done this villain. And the level of idiocy that he brings to the part, I don't know if any other actor could have done that. And he has this lisp that I found out he actually really had and had to work to uh, develop out of his speech pattern. But he's fucking funny and the character is so weird like it's 
Like, it's part Russell Simmons, part Steve Jobs, part Dr. Evil, part Kanye West. That's very appealing. That is a very <laughs> appealing uh, concoction. He's fucking great in it, and in a perfect world, he would get an Oscar nomination. And it looks like he dresses like Spike Lee, too, in the movie. Yes, and he talks like Mike Tyson. Ah. He, and he also... That's, that's how I like my women. Dress like Spike Lee, talk like Mike Tyson. There's a part <laughs> where he lets out a no. Like, no! But he doesn't, like, no! <laughs> that fucking slaughtered me. He's n- the danger and he's the comic relief in the movie. Like, there are things that I've been quoting constantly that he says in the, in the voice that he says it in, and I don't want to spoil the product placement, but the scene that it happens in, I, I was doubled over. But yeah, he's, it's a very stupid character, and that's part of the appeal of it. Yeah, so that I is... I fucking loved it. Okay. That, that is honestly... Like, the crazy – the thing you said about, like, Saints Row, Grand Theft Auto action scenes that are just fucking nuts, like, that honestly to me is not too appealing. Like, I tend to prefer kind of smaller scale uh, action and stuff like that. The, but the things I've heard about Samuel Jackson are the things that are making me go mm. – I, I mean, I fucking love Samuel Jackson, and I, lo- I think he's an hysterical dude. And, like, did they hear that he's really hysterical in this movie? I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe I should see The King's I'm I'm going to rent it. When the when it comes to Redbox, it's I think I uh, absolutely, absolutely worth a look. I um, think I, I yeah, I'm torn. I'm I'm mostly with Patrick. I I also would just be curious to see Colin Firth kicking ass. That might be amusing. Um, I want this guy to get a Liam Neeson type. <laughs> oh God, I would My, not wish that on anyone. No, 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 no. You know the problem with Liam Neeson? Like, Liam Neeson is – that's the Denzel Washington trap where you think like, oh, it's fucking awesome. Denzel Washington is all in all these movies kicking ass. But what that actually means is, oh, Denzel Washington ha- now has a lifestyle that can only be supported by being in endless action movies. Two guns. <laughs> like, yeah, well, two, gun, two guns is great, but the rest of them – I don't like two guns. I know you, I know you don't. We disagree on that. That's but I'm, I'm just love, saying like – I'm just I saying like – yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying that, like, there was a point when Denzel Washington was an actor, and now Denzel Washington is a guy who is in these cookie-cutter kind of action thrillers, and I think Liam Neeson's sort of in that same point where it's like, yeah. is, is he ever going to go back to acting, or has he gotten so used to the money that being in the Taken movies has got him that well, he's, he's just... He's doing uh, Scorsese's next, Silence. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, see, that's okay. that's what I want d- from Denzel, and I think Colin Firth is also a really good actor, and I would hate to see him just, like, get sucked into a Hollywood hole for the next... I'm talking about Neeson, who's doing uh, yeah. Silence, by the way. But, like, I would hate to see the same fate for Colin Firth, where he just gets sucked in this crazy hole, and he becomes Action Man, and you're well, like, man, what's the last time we saw Colin Firth act? I can't remember. Love, actually. Well, no, I'm saying <laughs> that will be the thing we're saying in seven years. Yeah, I know. Um, a simple also, man. Oh, yeah, you're right. Kingsman. Um, a couple other movies that I watched that I, I want to touch on. I was at a... Real, uh, real quick on these. Yes. Very quick. Um, I was at my sister's house, friend was house-sitting. 
another friend came over and we had an impromptu young Matt Dillon double feature <gasps> of Over the Edge and Little Darlings, which I had never seen. I'd never seen Little Darlings, but I am a fan of Over the Edge. I haven't seen it in years. Over the Edge is a great dark movie and they thought it was going to be cheesy and they saw all the fashion and all the posters on the walls and then all of a sudden you see kids smoking weed and that psycho cop and you're like nope this movie's not a cheese fest it's fucking dark man it's relevant and you can definitely see where kurt cobain got the idea for the smells like teen spirit video ah yes i remember that aspect um little darlings is an interesting film that you could never make today because of the subject matter of two girls betting to lose their virginity. But hmm. Christy McNichol is so fucking good in that movie, and I do not know why she did not explode as an actress. I don't even know who that is. Hmm. Uh, she was on the TV series Family and okay. appeared in some other things, but she's she's very good in it. Uh, Armanda Sante's chest hair gives an excellent <laughs> performance. That's another, uh, that's another thing that will be coming up later. I feel like you could make a movie about two teen girls betting to lose their virginity. I mean, the to-do list uh, with Aubrey Plaza was essentially that sort of thing. Like, you can make a indie, R-rated, mainstream-facing comedy with that. Well, surprisingly, a few years ago, I read that J.J. Abrams was trying to mount a remake of Little Darlings. Huh. And it's weird because the characters are like 15, 16, and in today's world, you can't do that. And the fact that Tatum O'Neill's character falls for Armand Asante, who's like 30 <laughs> years old, you could never do that today. You just you just can't do these things today. You can't have them busting into a restroom and stealing a condom machine. I, I think you could. I think you could. I do that yeah, every you, day. You, you, you can... You could probably do that, but I will. you couldn't do it with the grittiness and the 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 uh, the grunginess that it has. Because it's 1980, it's still got a hangover from the 70s, but things are starting to shape up to be the the 1980s. It's a, it's a great little movie that did big business. Hasn't been on DVD because of music rights, but uh. a friend of mine managed to have a digitized TCM rip that Ooh. we watched. So I recommend uh, probably would make a good down. double feature with Foxes, I think. That's a movie I've been meaning to see. Me too. Me too. Adrian Line. Oh, I didn't know he did it. Huh. Yes okay. he did. Wow. Jim, what did you see recently? Um you know, every week during the What We Watch segment, I usually just say, Hey guys, guess what? I saw an amazing fucking movie. And, you know, this is it. This is what it's about. Five stars, now go see it. Uh, I don't want to do that again. Uh, I'm going to save my... I will, I will say something you are doing again is you're, you're burying the lead and not letting anyone know what you're ta- going to actually be talking about for a good two minutes. I can't help it. I gotta have a prelude. Sure, go for it. Uh, so for now, I kind of want to ask a question. Um, okay. I want to talk about revenge movies because, um, take for example a film. 
I've seen twice, and I kind of want to love it on the basis of a great central performance from Kevin Bacon, as well as some very true, truly tense scenes, at least in the first half, I would say. And that would be Death Sentence, which... I fucking hate that movie. I noticed some people, uh, when I was looking over on Letterboxd, yeah, a lot of people hate it. Um, I think it is an unpleasant... yeah demoralizing film see that's what i want to bring up because like to me it it comes across as an exploitation film like death wish or something along those lines but by the third act the revenge becomes repetitive to where i lose interest and the violence is just too over the top it feels manipulative um and it loses me and it's like by the time it resorts to cliches like, oh, of course, Kevin Bacon's going to escape the hospital and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Um, and that's something that like I was really conflicted about. But also, I was thinking I'm conflicted on the pure basis of you know enjoying uh, revenge movies. And I think my feelings sort of stem all the way back to Last House on the Left. And not just because of its tonal issues... But I really felt torn, even when I saw it at a younger age, about the parents enacting revenge, which could just be like a moral quandary rather than a critique. But I'm just curious to pose the question to you guys, which revenge films do you think approach the overall concept of revenge better? Um Because, yeah, Death Sentence is not one that I highly recommend, even though I've tried liking it more as time has gone on, but I don't. Although I will tell you that James Wan has knocked it out of the park with The Conjuring. Yeah, he did a good job with that one. Mm -hmm. I I love that movie. It scared the shit out of me, and I thank you for that, Mr. Wan. And I also thank him for liking a comment that I made on somebody's Furious 7 trailer post. Um. You're welcome. That's your God, James Wan. Wow, he he just came into my room and said you're welcome and ran off. It was weird. So revenge films. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of what you're saying, Jim, I think was very elegantly touched upon with Prisoners, Ooh. which was one of my favorite films the year before last. Another I should rewatch because the fellow was too long. Um, there's some things I loved about it, particularly the performances and cinematography, but I just it's didn't get as affected work. by it. It's the best work Hugh Jackman's ever done as an actor. Agreed. And I think that had it not been for Nightcrawler, it would have been mm. Jake Gyllenhaal's best performance. He's yeah. so conflicted and so... It's a movie about testing your limits, and I think, Jim, what you were saying about Death Sentence that it doesn't do, like, it questions why is revenge something we pursue. Yes. I think that movie nails it. In terms of movies that I love that are revenge films that I love, um, I can name a few. I'm a huge fan of the Death Wish franchise. Sure. Uh, I adore Rolling Thunder. That's one I was going to bring up as being a good example. Yeah. That's a fucking amazing movie that blew my mind. I watched it because I had known that Quentin Tarantino was a big fan of it and I didn't know until I watched it that it was written by Paul Schrader Mm, and it just just blew my mind. It's slow and it builds up in the tension and the internal 
angst and when he finds out where that motherfucker lives and he goes to Tommy Lee Jones's house and he just has that I'll just get my gear response and they go and shoot up that brothel it's catharsis uh there's a there's yeah. an article written I believe it was in Newsweek or Time in 1991 about film violence and how it was escalating and the MPAA was having a problem with it. Jonathan Demme was quoted in the article because Silence of the Lambs was one of the things that they were discussing. Hmm. And he said something along the lines of movies can provide catharsis. I walk out of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre feeling refreshed. And I think that's something... <laughs> Hmm. to chew on and I that's always stuck with me ever since I found that quote for a research. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean revenge films are it hard, I mean revenge narratives have existed since Shakespeare. Like the cycle of revenge is that's Hamlet. Like Hamlet yeah. is a fucking revenge film. Like True. Uh, like the I mean revenge it revenge is a it's a weird subject for films cuz unlike love Revenge is a thing that actually very few people go through. Like, yeah. it's yeah. it's not a thing that it's like you're every day. It's like, well, when your time comes to enact revenge on your murdered loved one, what will you do? Like, it's not an actual mor- moral quandary that you're likely going to have to make. But it is just, like, cathartic. And sometimes it's sort of – and sometimes it is just used as pure catharsis. Like, those, like the, Death, the Death Wish movies are just pure right-wing – like, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to fuck around with these stupid liberal court systems? What What if we could just blow them away because we know they deserve it? And like, exactly. that's what the catharsis of those movies is. And like, and like, and even if you don't, and then you fire you a bazooka, the bad guy, right? And exactly, flying over the Hudson. And even if you don't like actually have that worldview, like especially the later Death Wish movies, get so silly that it's still enjoyable. And also just revenge as a motive for a character is just a good like it could you can justify so many characters making so many crazy choices when their motive is revenge and it can go crazy i mean like the most baroque crazy example of that would be like park chan wook's films like old boy old boy is this insane thing and he didn't write old boy you know old boy is based off a graphic novel but like but but old boy is just this insane narrative where it's like it's you're constantly being blown away by how weird and unexpected the next thing that happens is, and every scene is catches you off guard and by surprise, and it's because it just has that motor of revenge. But it's not as if like old boy is the most thoughtful film. Like it does, it does kind of gut punch you. But I do think that's a nice balance. Old boy has that nice balance. I, I actually that. think rolling thunder is yeah. the perfect balance of that movie's really exciting and tense to watch, but it also captures the emptiness of revenge in a way that doesn't feel mm-hmm. like yeah. uh, it's patting itself on the back. Like it doesn't feel like it's trying to make a statement. It just, it's just in the way William Devane is just sort of lifeless and dead and just that weird anti-climax of an ending yeah. in that shootout, which is simultaneously <laughs> exciting and not and not satisfying. Right. Like, it, it just threads that needle perfectly, and it's just a really exciting genre film, and it's also, like, it's also not Death Wish, where, where you walk away being like, oh, how refreshing. Like, it's, it's a really good balance of that. I mean, 
I, I'll um, tell you another. I'll, I'll tell you a couple other good films that get that balance right. Yeah. Um, to Live and Die in L.A. I think gets it brilliantly. Well, that becomes a revenge film. Not it's 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 only a revenge film like later on, it's, right? It's, yeah, like it's, no, it's a revenge film pretty much the whole time because Peterson's partner gets offed by Defoe's henchman, and that's oh, when he's yeah. the vengeance. And that's a movie that paints your hero as a fucked up, flawed, like, he's trading a, a parolee for sex so she can stay out of prison. Like, he's doing really fucked up things. And when that shocker happens, you see John Pankow's character, Vukovic, just turn. And that's sort of like showing, like, this circle of revenge. Like, it doesn't go away. No matter what you do. You, there will never be satisfaction. Um, I think that I think I think I forget that's a revenge film because it is also procedural because they are mm-hmm. working within a government agency. Like you're totally yeah. right, it's a revenge film. But most of the time, you think of a revenge film, you think of someone working outside the system because the system has failed them right. in some way. Like uh, another uh, uh, okay, great recent example um, and. You will you will know right away. John Wick, fucking cathartic. Yeah, they. John, uh, John Wick's a really good example. Wick combines a lot of films. It's it's got a little of Drive, which is another sort of revenge movie. Um, there's some history of violence in there. Uh, it's got elements of the killer, and it even harkens back to old seventies stuff like Rolling Thunder, like hmm. Charlie Barrick, like movies like that, that were like hardened, hard-ass, like you could easily see John Wick as a movie being done in the 70s where Clint Eastwood decides he's had enough of playing cops. He wants to play a kind of rough criminal guy. He's like, well, I don't really want to do a fourth dirty Harry. Let me do this. And he does it, and he faces off against Donald Plessence, who's this weirdo gangster that smokes a fat blunt when he's paranoid. And by the way, Michael Nyquist is fucking great in that movie. But Wick is another one that, a lot like Rolling Thunder, it, it actually does take its time to get to the killing, to get to see Keanu Reeves killing every other person that he gets his hands on. And when it happens, you want them all to die, especially if you're a dog lover or a dog <laughs> owner, which I am. Yeah, it's a weird thing for me, though, because to get a visceral sort of like vicarious catharsis out of watching, you know, revenge being inflicted upon dog killers, rapists. But John, but, but you but I mean, the difference between Last House on the Left and John Wick is John Wick still exists in a comic book universe. Yeah, like no, I that, know that that the, that hotel, the whole premise of their underworld. Yeah, like it has, it definitely it's has not realistic. Like, like, Mike, like Mike is saying, it definitely has those seventies edges to it, but it's not realistic, and it's just a safe environment for you to have that catharsis. But uh, and but it's but I don't know, I don't feel guilty because I I honestly often don't really feel like oh they need to die. Like I I rarely get bloodlust watching. Uh, yeah. Um, um, Robocop is another great revenge example. And that's another one that deals with the angst and the existentialism. Like, I'm yeah. a robot. I'm supposed to follow those three prime directives. 
you know, when uh, my favorite part of the movie is when he shoots the rapist in the nuts because he deserved it and because it's classic Verhoeven, like, ha, 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 I shot a guy in the nuts and there's a squid the size of Cleveland on his yeah. crotch. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, and, okay, when you bring up RoboCop and you bring up To Live and Die in L.A., like, what does RoboCop, To Live and Die in L.A., Last House on the Left, and John Wick have in common? And then it makes you realize, like, revenge isn't really a theme or even a genre. Revenge is a structure. It is a way for a script to be structured. Mm-hmm. Like, like, okay, so I Spit on Your Grave and Mean Girls are in the same genre? Both Not at all. <laughs> yeah, they're both revenge movies. Like, it's just kind of a structure, and it's a convenient one. And I think there's a lot of things I don't necessarily but, uh, care for but, in revenge films. But, like, yeah. But uh, as far as just like again, it's a thing that you actually probably most times in your life when you have a problem with someone, then you just cut off your communication with that person, and that is yeah, yeah you like, unfriend. You never them. have to deal with this crazy cycle of revenge, right. so it's a little unrelatable in that way. And but, I, I want to also point out, um, we were talking about Liam Neeson earlier. I think the first Taken is a great movie. I think it's a stylish, you had never seen anything like this before, you had never seen Liam Neeson do an action hero thing outside Darkman, which is another revenge movie, but there's something very visceral and very primal about this man who wants his daughter and does not want her to go through the hardship of white slavery, and when he hooks up that car battery to the guy. Like, it's almost structured like a video game. Like, each scene, each action sequence has a main villain who he has to kill. Mm-hmm. And I think the the ultimate part is when, uh, of, like, where it reaches that philosophical dilemma is when he's in the... Have you both seen Taken? Yeah. I like it fine. I okay. don't. I, I didn't like it at all, but that's fine. Uh, the scene where he's in the auction and he sees her drugged out and he finally just snaps. Like, he's been snapping the whole movie, but when he sees the condition that she's in, he's lost beyond cause. And he meets that fellow father from the other, this rich American who has a family and he pleads over and over with Liam Neeson and he empties his clip in him because you are fucking scum and you deserve it. And while those are not my personal political views, I do think that there is something very gratifying when you get to see people you do not like die. Sure. Yeah. I I get that impression. I think I want, I, I don't expect all revenge movies to fall under the same umbrella of rolling thunder or even something like blue ruin from last year, which oh. Blue Ruin to Blue Ruin to me is almost like the flip side of Old Boy. Yeah. Whereas Old Boy goes off into like crazy, crazy territory and it's like, all right, we're gonna have this revenge structure, but that's only as a way to justify all of this insanity. Blue Ruin again is like, all right, we have a structure that's so familiar that we can ignore it and instead of on hyper focusing on insane procedural details like everything about that makes Blue Ruin great is just that it's 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 like laser focus right. on like yes. okay what exactly is the process of doing everything let's let's break down the revenge film into the minutia of yeah, what do you like and that's exactly what I was gonna say minutia mm-hmm. 
You know, I was going to say, um, Blue Ruin, first of all, it's, it's a great film. Uh, I hope to see more of Jeremy Saulnier out of his out of his next film and further films that he makes. Uh, it's a great debut film, or at least a great breakout film. I know he did a few features beforehand, but this was his big one. Um, it treaded a lot of the same water that a film like No Country for Old Men did, in that it's just open and yeah. scary and Minimal. ugly. And the the and it harkens back to Hamlet. Why do I say that? Because in the end, what brings about his downfall, his mortality, is the fact that he spent too much time plotting his revenge than actually carrying it out. And I think that's a great subversion. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why Blue Ruin was a success for me. I think it's, a, yeah. I think it's an excellent film. And one that I sadly couldn't get onto my top ten list this year. So yeah, Same I mean, here. there's yeah. a lot of good, there's a lot of good revenge movies. Um, yeah, it was just an I, interesting thing that occurred to me as I was watching Death Sentence. I, I wouldn't feel too guilty uh, about these fantasy constructs. They're just, it's yeah, it's catharsis. It's not, uh, it's slasher movies are fun, but that doesn't mean that people getting murdered with kitchen knives is fun. <laughs> you know, like no. it's just, it's catharsis. Um, and it's and also just again it's a good just uh, reliable structure to tell a genre story no matter like what flavor you put on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I for what I watched this week I was thinking I could talk about I've been watching a lot of black college movies lately <laughs> um, because I'm going to be doing a upcoming bonus episode on the film Dear White People. Oh really? Um, yeah yeah. Uh, but there's going to be a bonus episode, so I'll talk about uh, films like uh, Drumline and School Days and, and Dear White People then. Uh, well, guess what, Patrick? There's going to be a bonus episode from me, too. Sure, what, what on? Laura Dern. going to do oh. the first edition of an Actors Club episode. Oh, well, thank you for not inviting me. <laughs> that, was, uh, that makes me feel very good, Jim. No, I was going to invite you. And then what happened? I, you got lost it's in the mail? It's not going to happen. It's, it, well, it's going to happen in like a month, dude. Don't worry. You if, have time. you were plotting an Actors Club podcast, then you know who to ask for the Rowdy Roddy Piper episode. Sure. When the Rowdy Roddy Piper episode comes along, there's only one name on our list. You still have to watch Hell Comes to Frogtown, Patrick. <laughs> I, do, I do still have to watch. I, do, I told Brian Pipe that I'd watch Hell Comes to Frogtown, and I'm going to – And I, God damn it, I'm going to do it. Okay, so I could watch that. Um, I recently – I played this uh, strategy game called Crusader Kings 2, which is all about the Middle Ages, and you deal with lineage and stuff, and it made me get really into like the idea of stories about politicking and trying to get power and stuff. I watched uh, a BBC adaptation of Richard II uh, last night that was wow. really good. I Ambitious watched, of you. Yeah, it, no, it was good. It was. I've actually, I was very happy with myself because I've always just been a well. Shakespeare is really hard for me, so I can't do Shakespeare. And this time, as long as I just read the synopsis of every event in the play beforehand, I was able to actually follow most of the dialogue, and it was really, really good. You know what's so, on America's mind. What? It isn't ISIS or Jeb Bush or how outrageously out of control the cost of college is. Mm-hmm. It's this, Patrick. What did you think of Inherent Vice? Oh, no, I could talk about that. I'm not going to. 
Okay, um, then don't. I don't care. We're gonna, we're, well, I'm going to talk about Inherent Vice next time because I'll, <laughs> I'll say this much about Inherent Vice. Uh, I'm seeing it again. It's a good uh, sign. Yeah, yeah. It's only playing at the it's only playing at the Gene Siskel uh, for another three days, so I'm going to see it again. I'll talk about it on the uh, John Houston episode. I think it's a I think it's a wonderful film. Yeah, I, Vice. I I agree. So anyway, so I watched that. I watched Lion in Winter. Um. At work today, so I've been in that kind of mood, but I'm not going to do any of that. Instead, I'm going to put on a game show. So here is the game show, folks. Um, let me just go ahead and get this out of the way. Warning: the following segment contains adult and frank sexual language. If you are easily offended by sexual content, check the show notes and jump forward to the Larry Cohen discussion. Now that's out of the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for everyone's favorite game show. Is it gay porn? Is it straight porn? Or is it some shit that Patrick made up? You see, I've been working at a video store for the past three weeks, and uh, I've seen a lot of titles of a lot of very interesting films. And God, I've decided back. to you're, put together this little game show. Let's meet the contestants. Mike Flynn lives in New Jersey, where he watches action movies and does golden earring karaoke. He's best friends with Keanu Reeves and says that he makes a mean devil egg. Welcome, Mike Flynn. Welcome. <laughs> and our returning champion, Jim Laskowski. Jim lives in Elgin, Illinois, where he makes pierogies and eats pierogies and sometimes hosts a film podcast called The Record Club. Fun fact, Jim once actually dropped a big box of porn that a random guy at his work gave him at my house. It was mostly butt stuff. And of course, Wait, I, did that did that actually happen? It sure did. It sure did. I did not keep the box of porn. Um, and I, of course, am your host, Patrick Rapol. Gentlemen, the rules are very simple. <laughs> I am going to give you a title, and you each will take turns determining whether this the following title is gay porn, straight porn, or just some shit that I made up. Patrick, where are the buzzers? Yeah, uh, there's no buzzer. You each get, uh, I, I go to each of you in turn. So you each get to answer for every uh, every title. I wish I would have known. I would have prepared. I would have uh, practiced. I would have uh, done some research. Oh, Jim, you do research so much already. Now, for our first title. Green Lantern is gay. A triple X parody. Is this Mike Flynn? Is this gay porn, straight porn, or just some shit that I made up? <laughs> the title was Green Lantern <laughs> is Gay. <laughs> What's your answer, Mike? We will need an answer from you, Mike. Um, well, see, if it was a triple X parody, <laughs> it would not have is gay. I am going to say it is some shit you made up, Patrick. All right. And Jim, Green Lantern is gay, a triple X parody. Hmm. I guess I'm going to have to go with gay. You know what? It is gay. It yeah! is an actual, actual title of a gay porn that we carry at my video store. That is one point for you, Jim. Woo-hoo! On to the next title. Yeah, exactly. Fun fact, that title was uh, that title came to the writer of the film 
um, when in 2011 he heard an asshole teenager leave a movie theater <laughs> and make that very complaint. <laughs> now the next title, Whoa. now the next yeah. title, Mike is Humphrey Blogard in the Cocktease Falcon. Is this gay porn, straight porn, or just some shit I made up? Um, I'm gonna have to go with straight porn on this one, Patrick. Okay, Jim. The title is Humphrey Blogart in the Cocktease Falcon. I'm gonna say you made it up, dude. Jim, that is correct again. That is some shit that I made up. Woohoo! For those fans of John Houston who want to hear, thank you, thank you, Jim. For those fans of John Houston who do want to see some porn, there is a porn called The African Queen, but it does not involve German gunships. <laughs> All right, your next title, gentlemen. Mike, the title is The Butt X-Files. Shit, I'm having a Jimmy Fallon moment here. <laughs> the title is The Butt X-Files. <laughs> Don't say it again, I'm gonna laugh. <laughs> Gay porn, straight porn, or just some shit I made up. <laughs> I think I there's definitely a Scully character if it's an X-Files parody. All right. And Jim, the butt X-Files. I'm going to say straight as well. You are both correct. It is a straight porn. The person who named named it had a stroke. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only explanation I can think of. All right. Now, Mike, your next title. uh, Real quick, I do want to say... we here at Is It Gay Porn, Straight Porn, or Some Shit Patrick Made Up, uh, do, not believe, uh, do not believe in racist porn titles. However, here's one. Motel Rwanda. <laughs> Mike Flynn, Motel Rwanda. Is this gay porn, straight porn, or just some shit Patrick made up? Uh, Patrick, you made that shit up. Okay, Jim, Motel Rwanda. Oh, my God. I'm going to say straight porn. I'm sorry, you're both incorrect. It is literally, there is literally a gay porn called Motel Rwanda. It is one white dude and nine black dudes fucking in a motel. Yeah, yeah. That, what that sound is, is America crying. Okay, (laughs) here we go. Mike Flynn, your next title. (laughs) Mike Flynn, your next title is Butt Snack. (laughs) (laughs) Butt Snack. Butt Snack. (laughs) I should speak for the record that I have not been Googling any of these. Sure. (laughs) Same here. I wouldn't do that. I don't I don't like to cheat. 
Is it Mike um, Flynn? Is it gay porn? Straight porn? Or just some shit that I made say, up? Did you say butt snack or butt smack? <laughs> that is butt, S as in Sid, N as in Nancy, A-C-K. <laughs> butt snack sounds pretty straight. Straight? Jim, butt snack. Gay. Jim is correct, it is gay porn! Ow! Yeah, I like that that uh, that like cougar that cougar sound effect. You sound like Steven Tyler in the Revolution X arcade game. Yes, that is exactly that is exactly what that sounds like. It sounds like Steven Tyler in the Revolution X. Jim, you have just shot your projectile CD into the heart of America. Oh, good. All right, Mike Flynn, your next title: Sodomize This. <laughs> Is this an analyze this parody? <laughs> I I will I will answer that question after you both put in your answers. Gay. Gay. Jim. Sodomize this. Shit. Uh straight. I'm sorry, you're both incorrect. That was a trick question. Literally ten percent of all porn titles. Are sodomized this. It what? doesn't matter if it's gay or straight or what. We have nine different titles in our store called Sodomize This that aren't part of the same series. My it's, God. It's not a parody of Analyze This. It's not a particularly like clever phrase. I have no idea why it's the most popular phrase in porn, but Sodomize This is, in fact, all porn titles. So none of you got a point on that one. Now the next <laughs> now Mike Flynn. Yes. This is okay. Uh, hold on, let me compose myself a little bit. What's the score? Score right now is Jim. You have four, and Mike has one. But Mike, there is still time for you to come back. All right. So Mike Flynn, the next question, the next title is "Shit, Piss, Fuck, Cunt, Cut, Sucker, Motherfucker, and Tits." This ain't George <laughs> Carlin, a triple X parody. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cock, sucker, motherfucker, and tits. Wow. So the, the, um, you've rendered the title speechless. is. The yeah, no, 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 I, I, I heard you. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, mother, and tits. I heard words you can't say on TV, buddy. This ain't George Carlin, I triple X parent. Risque. Suggestive. No, it doesn't exist. Okay, Jim. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. This ain't George Carlin, a triple X parody. Is this gay porn, straight porn, or some shit I made up? You made that shit up, dude. Okay, you're both correct. There is no George Carlin parody. <laughs> I wish. Um, all right. Yeah. The next title, Mike Flynn. They grow them big in Prague. <laughs> That's straight porn because uh, that <laughs> definitely involves tits. They grow them big in Prague. Straight porn, says Mike Flynn. Jim, what say you? Mm, I'm going to say straight too. I'm sorry, you're both incorrect. What? That is, in fact, gay porn. The, oh. the they in question is cock. They grow big cocks in Prague. Oh, okay, good to um, know. Yeah, good to know. In case you're ever taking a trip out to the Czech Republic, just remember, they grow them big in Prague. This this game show brought to you by the Prague Travel Board. Okay. Mike Flynn. Yes? Mike Flynn, you still have a chance to come back. The next title, Raisin in the Buns. Straight. 
<laughs> Mike Flynn says raisin in the buns is a straight porn. Jim? Oh. Raisin in the buns. Oh. oh my god. I'm gonna say you made it up. I'm sorry, you're both incorrect. Raisin in the buns is a gay porn. Damn it! Uh, it is a gay porn literally about black men fucking after coming home from picking cotton. Turns out a lot of gay porn is super racist, and it's literally the only part of my job that I really hate and makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Let's applaud the heinous racism of the gay porn. <laughs> Do you watch drink. these? No, I can't watch any of these. No, of course not. I just, I know the titles. I rearranged the whole section the other night. So. How often are, are these rented out? These are, these, these are the, the foundation of our business. Most, most of the money we make comes from, see, my, my video store is in Andersonville, and Andersonville oh, is kind of where the, Andersonville is kind of where, like, the gay men of Boys Town go to retire. Um, oh. So there's just a lot of nice elderly gay men who live in Andersonville who have been renting porn since the 90s and are not going to stop now. So, yeah, most I'd say most of the things that get rented from my store are gay porn. What is, what is the primary format that they usually rent, VHS or DVD? No, DVD. We, we do carry a few VHS, but it's mostly DVD. <laughs> Okay, the final title. Now, this title, Jim and Mike, this title is worth seven points. Literally, the rest of the game was a was a sham. Whoever gets this one correct, wow, is the Fuck. winner. The final title is Semen Hole, Texas. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The title is Semen Hole, Texas. Now, Mike Flynn, is this gay porn? Straight porn, oh or god. just some shit that I made up. Oh my god, oh my god. Oh my god. <sighs> Semen Hole, Texas. I'm going to have to go with gay porn on this one, Patrick. Jim? I think you made it up. Jim? I'm sorry to say that is incorrect. Ah! Mike Flynn! Demon Hole, Texas is a gay porn. Oh my god! Nine points to Jim's five. Let it be known throughout the ages that Mike Flynn really knows his porn. Yes. Very good. It was, it was a pleasure playing on the show, Patrick. I'm sure it was. And uh, as your prize, I'm going to sign you up on a lot of mailing lists. Uh, uh, Paul Morrissey and uh, Treasure Island Media. You're going to be getting regular uh, catalogs and other gay porn goodies sent to your house every week. So congratulations, Mike Flynn. <laughs> um, I think that wraps up what we watched. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, if you, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to pause this and go take a shower, I don't blame you. Anyway, um, fellas, this was a lot of fun, yes, but it you was. know it's going to be even more fun. What's going to be more fun? Talking about Larry Cohen. I never saw a movie that was goofy and all over the place. That was no mistake. The serpent looked fake. 
Exploitation filmmakers, Jim? Uh, Russ Meyer, maybe? Russ Meyer definitely counts. And we've done, like, horror directors who have, you know... Yeah. And a lot of horror movies are double as uh, exploitation, but... Eventually think... we'll get to Jack Hill, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Jack Hill. But um, Larry Cohen is a singular figure mm-hmm. um, in the world of exploitation. In a... It, like, if you just look at his career, it doesn't seem necessarily that to be true because, like, oh, he did what a lot of, like Jack Hill, he did what a lot of exploitation guys did, where it's like, oh, he made a couple black exploitation movies, he made a couple horror movies, he made a couple weird thrillers. That, but his approach to these movies is bizarre. Um, there is there is a uh, Joe Bob Briggs quote that I want to. This may be my favorite thing I've seen written about Larry Cohen. Please. And I want to I want to say it right now. It's for it's actually for a it's in a review of the ambulance which uh, I believe Mike you'll be talking about later. Yes. So um this is in <clears throat> just a paragraph in uh in Joe Bob Briggs's review of <clears throat> the ambulance. Um Larry Cohen is the only guy I know of who makes movies so quirky that if one of them comes on cable you've never seen before, you can tell after one scene that it's a Larry Cohen flick. There's no such thing as a sane character in a Larry Cohen movie, for one thing. There's also no such thing as a scene that ends. Every Cohen movie is one long scene, usually a nightmare. <laughs> that is a good, uh, uh, concise summing up of the things that make his movies weird. This episode is over. Thank you, Joe <laughs> yeah, Bob. Sure. Um, so, Jim, you showed me the stuff. I did, did I? You were the guy who introduced me to the stuff. Um, wow. Of, the eight, of like the cheesy, hilarious 80s movies that you love and that you've shown me to, like the stuff was definitely the greatest one, I think, that you that I probably wouldn't necessarily have watched. Um, did we watch this the same night as Terror Vision? We might have. Okay. This might have been a stuff Terror... I definitely like stuff more than Terror Vision. Like, but yeah, like yeah. it might have been a stuff Terror Vision double... Double uh, feature. <laughs> I remember watching it um, on New Year's Eve with uh, Red Bear and Super Famicom, which was kind of fun. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To go back to go back to our music days, those two were musicians in the yes. DIY folk scene. Interesting. Okay. Um, Roger, like I thought of Roger Corman 
meets Samuel Fuller a little bit because he has like sociological commentary, the procedural elements of Samuel Fuller, but he still has that like gritty weirdness and low budget B movie kind of approach that Corman would have, really. I mean, there's definitely a cheapness to his movies that is that reminds me of Corman. Endearing. Absolutely. Like it's and, and cheapness is in some ways cheapness is a compliment, but in some ways it also is they feel cheap. Uh like in a lot of ways like the energy these movies get come from how weird and just just like rough around the edges they are. Um and how it's yeah, the way Joe Bob like brought up like scenes kind of just run into each other. Yeah. That's like, that's yeah. for sure. Larry Cohen is not a natural like gifted storyteller. No. <laughs> he, he he is no Samuel Fuller in that regard. Mm-mm. He's not um his movies have a structure in of their own that in some films it works to its degree magically. Uh the stuff does that with its different characters alternating between Mo and the boy and chocolate chip Charlie Q does it magnificently as well. Yes. Um, where it doesn't do it well is a film like it lives again, which is a fucking dreadfully boring sequel. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say that the stuff is actually like, the stuff might be the best entry point if you're looking for like your first Larry Cohen movie. Agreed. But it's also not necessarily representative. Like if you just saw the stuff, you might think that Larry Cohen is this sly, sharp kind of social commentator. Yeah. And yeah. And he's actually not like because the stuff is just it's satire is just way more put together and it's just way it just works way better as a comedy. The writing is sharper. <laughs> the special effects are actually really impressive in yes. the stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, lo- I, I love the stuff. Um, Moriarty is hilarious in it. He's great in pretty much every cover. Oh, God, yes. Done. Yeah. Um, and it's watching some of these movies have just made me realize how underrated he is as a performer. Um, even in dramatic things, if you've ever seen Who'll Stop the Rain, he's absolutely <sighs> heartbreaking in that film. That was a movie my dad loved, and I've never seen it. Good, I'm putting it on the list. Um, that film, he's also Nick he's also really good um, in the Masters of Horror episode, which I'm glad you told me about, Patrick, because it was quite good. Master, yeah, the Masters of Horror episode is it's hilarious because that series was just really bad. Yeah, and generally none of the episodes were were indicative of what made its directors good horror directors, but. That is, but Larry Cohen's is like a good example of a Larry Cohen movie. Yeah, I like because, the idea of two serial weird, killers sparring yeah, off one another. It's a weird concept that doesn't have a tight structure, and it's got some batshit performances, and it's got a weird sense of humor to it. Where like the damsel in distress, played by Verza Balk, she's not like scared of them; she's more just like pissed off at them. <laughs> like the whole time, she's just like mad that they're bothering her. It's it's right. a really weird movie, but okay. So like, so like the stuff, the stuff. Okay, so I was just gonna say like the stuff is like, it it is way more put together and um and sort of high not highbrow but uh high high production values. I mean, it's still cheap if you compare it to a movie like the the eighties blob. Like it's not <laughs> like you can tell like the stuff wasn't made on a huge budget, but it's no. still just it's way way put together. 
and, but it still does have that weirdness in the Michael Moriarty performance in just the weird sense of humor. Like, I'll tell you one of my favorite weird moments of the stuff. Um, and it, actually, it isn't even a moment; it's a performance, and that would be Paul Sorvino. Yeah, I was about to say everything Paul Sorvino says is just bizarre. Yeah, it is. you know what he reminds me of in that movie is basically any Ren and Stimpy episode where they have an army colonel. Yeah, that's a Paul great. Sorvino yeah. is playing that character. <laughs> Playing a Ren and Stimpy character in that movie, like an episode where they would enlist in the army, yeah. that would be the, the drill sergeant is Colonel Spears. Yeah, and no kidding. I just it's like, weird because like that movie, seeing that around the time I was just getting into horror and horror comedies, it just it touches that sweet spot of like you mentioned the eighties blob or Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars or even Abel Ferrara's Body Snatchers movie. Like there was just Which all these Larry Cohen actually co wrote. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah, I mean it, it was just this time of um like late eighties satire on Reagan and consumerism and just like, you know, conformity. And I I love that stuff. And well, no pun intended. It's an interest it's interesting that you watch that and Terror Vision back to back because Terror Vision isn't as successful in terms of no. the social commentary aspect. It's more about the effects and the goofiness and the self awareness. Yeah, it's but they're more both, goofy. They're both about addiction in the mm. consumer marketplace. The stuff is food. Terror Vision's TV. I don't think either of them are as brilliant as, say, They Live, which is sort of the ultimate tome, in my opinion, on genre consumer satire. Uh, but the stuff is, is funny. You have that kid who buys into the bullshit. You have Michael Moriarty saying, like you said, weird shit. The Sorvino <laughs> character. Garrett Morris yeah. is also Chocolate very good He's he, he, like the fact that he knows karate. Like, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah, it. So, so there is the stuff on the one hand, which is like, like you said, it's closer to the kind of just uh, actually funny '80s comedy horror kind of stuff. Like, it, it is. It's the only place where um, Larry Cohen reached like the levels of like some of the commercials and the stuff feel like the commercials in RoboCop as yep. far as satire goes. Yeah. Absolutely. On, the, on, on the other hand, Cue the Winged Serpent is a I'd say is almost as good and it's but in a completely different way. And I would say Cue the Winged Serpent is maybe the most quintessentially Larry Cohen movie ever made. It's from the moment that David Carradine has the line about maybe his head just unscrewed and fall fell off. <laughs> it's all uphill from there. Cue upon reappraisal is probably in my top three of his, his stuff. Michael Moriarty, again, oh God, yeah. playing a completely gonzo fucking character. He's a con artist that's married, and he's gunning for a job as a pianist at a bar, and he scat sings. I love that. That's such I, a weird off the beaten so path fucking moment. Weird. And like, you want to talk about a con artist like Michael Moriarty in this movie feels like 
he feels like the thing that sometimes happens in Nicolas Cage movies where sometimes oh, yeah. Nicolas Cage is just, well, he says everything loudly and he does his line readings kind of strange and that's Nicolas Cage for you. But then sometimes Nicolas Cage is in movies where it seems like he's literally trying to do everything he can to do a batshit gonzo, like to subvert everything. Like Nicolas Cage, it feels like he is playing a crazy Andy Kaufman-esque practical joke on the directors and the audience on like the premise of like, why are you even watching this movie? And Michael Moriarty in Q is the same thing where. Yeah, totally. It's captivating because you never have any clue what he is going to do. It's like, there are some scenes where he kind of doesn't make eye contact with anyone. And he just is this dead eyed look. And he just kind of talks to nobody. Like he says his lines, like he's under hypnosis. And then there's other (laughs) Times where he's just going crazy and way over the top and screaming. And then, like, literally every scene he's in is exciting because you're like, what the fuck is Michael Moriarty going to do next? And because it's the kind of movie that is so weird and so silly, it doesn't hurt the movie at all. Like, it only helps the movie. That's that's exactly how I felt, too, with... You mentioned Nicolas Cage. What re- what this performance reminded me of is Nicolas Cage in Vampire's Kiss. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Jimmy Quinn and whatever the, his character's name is in Vampire's Kiss. Like, that's, a, that's like the moment where Nicolas Cage proved he wasn't just the, the kid from Moonstruck. That's the moment where he just started acting weirdly. He's so pretentious and he has that, that accent that goes in and out. It's such a great role, but... Back on point, the thing, another thing I love about Q, and this is something that I love about a lot of Larry Cohen's work, is that there's always a bonkers, supernatural, or fantastical element to his plots, and he always has it in this gritty, mean street, Scorsese, <laughs> Lumet-esque vision of New York City. Yeah, he yeah, loves well, I New mean, York. That is, that's just because he couldn't afford to get rights to film, so he has to do it Mean Street style, where it's all handheld and shot on location. And there's always like there's always scenes, especially in Q, like they're just scenes where it's cops and it's just cops giving exposition as they're walking from the department to their car and they pull off to go to wherever like the next scene. But just in the background, they'll just be like this group of Latino men just staring at the camera. Yeah. <laughs> because they're just like, oh, I guess someone's filming a movie here. We should check this out. And there's no PAs to like say, oh, excuse me, you're in the shot. So like constantly throughout the, like Q and God told me to, there's just like extras who are not actual extras. They're just citizens who are staring that, at the camera. That's actually very similar to the scene in Birdman where Keaton's coat gets stuck in the stage door and he runs up around the, the theater in his underwear. All of those people just got swiped off the street like we're making a movie we need this to look real. And that's sort of the Larry Cohen ideology in action in a Best Picture winner. But the, di- the, the difference though is Birdman is a highly sophisticated technical achievement where they have to like come up with tricks to make a crowd look real because... Right. They have to have this specific camera movement, whereas Larry Cohen is just like going to shoot it documentary style. Like he shoots it the way documentaries in the seventies were shot. Yeah, I right. noticed that in Black Caesar, like all the people in the background are looking befuddled. Like, what's that camera mm-hmm. doing there? Why is yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's so weird. And, 
And if this sound and if all this sounds like these movies are shitty, like it actually gives this gives it an energy because like Michael Moriarty's performance in Q and to a lesser extent the stuff and to a certain extent in It's Alive Three, like it adds this un- unpredictable energy that actually really makes the films exciting to watch, even though you know, they're not like tightly constructed genre exercises. You know, you bring up It's Alive Three. And I think we oh, should yeah. address that because, in my opinion, It's Alive 3 is the best of the series. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. But that's that's not necessarily high praise. <laughs> but I think the scene where, like, each act of that screenplay is a different genre. The yep. first act is tabloid satire. The second act is, uh, Patrick, you mentioned The Lost World, and it... It yeah. sort of has that feel of something like that, or even like Predator or something. And then the third act becomes Humanoids of the Deep. Yeah, well, I mean, and, as far as I'm concerned, like Spielberg or whoever wrote the Lost Jurassic Park 2, The Lost World, like they got that from It's Alive 3, because It's Alive 3 is about someone um, whose reputation is in shambles because of a scandalous thing that happened to them, and now they're going to return to this place uh, with these creatures that were part of why they're scandalized, and then they return to the mainland with these creatures, uh, and then all hell breaks loose, and that's just Ian Malcolm I, <laughs> in Lost World. I, I, um, my favorite part, and I told you this, Jim, in It's Alive 3, is the reveal that... Moriarty's credibility falls so hard that he becomes a shoe salesman. (laughs) And he's pleading with the customer that the fact that the shoes don't fit is because there's a government conspiracy that shoes are too small. And I uh, I was flabbergasted by how brilliantly gonzo weird that scene was. Like, He's he's fucking Al Bundy within the, in, in a in a Buster Brown or whatever he's working at in a mall, and it, it just it's it, it's like it's it's almost like something that in a big movie would have been a deleted scene. Yeah, no, that's true. Like, I, it, it's so weird because like there is, you know, filmmakers and movies especially that have like quirkiness for quirky sake, and then you roll your eyes at it because it feels forced. For the most part, I would say that the majority of Cohen's films, it's endearing yeah. um, in this shaggy like, dog Cohen, like, kind of way. Cue the Winged Serpent is like – Cue the Winged Serpent, the story of it is – and the script of it is 100% as dumb as any generic <laughs> sci-fi channel original movie. Yeah. The difference is yeah. Cue the Winged Serpent is surprising. It consistently – like the plot – of the cult that's trying to raise the serpent and like the you don't expect to get such graphic face scalping shots like it's really gross no. points and it's and it like it just keeps surprising you and i mean michael moriarty is no small part of that but like there is nothing surprising about sharknado you know <laughs> like Ugh. hugh the wing serpent is the exact answer to why no uh hilarious sharktopus versus squid dracula is like is ever interesting. Um, well, that's because none of them have Michael Moriarty going on a five minute monologue about like he's in a Michael Mann movie where he's trying to negotiate the terms of his 
legal status well, about no, how he wants a million tax-free dollars, exclusive rights to the picture of, of Q, and <laughs> it just goes so gonzo and far off. And I fucking love that scene where they're they're in the conference room. It's so good, and David Carradine and Richard Roundtree are so deadpan great in it and you've got candy clark who's like the long-suffering wife girlfriend of moriarty's character and it's just like why the fuck are you doing this again like oh jimmy you know like like i mean moriarty's definitely part of it but i think like moriarty more speaks to cohen's approach which is which is like if this is silly which it is and if I don't have the budget to have an amazing-looking winged serpent, which I don't, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to make something you at least haven't seen before. This movie doesn't resemble any other movie. Like, the, yeah. winged, the winged serpent is almost incidental in this monster movie. Like, it is not about the manhunt to find the winged serpent and to track it down and kill it. Like, it is all about digressions. Um, yeah, a lot of his films are... Yeah, exactly. And I, I, yeah. I will say I, I found the um, Ray Harryhausen uh, Wing Serpent uh, stuff to be really well done and endearing, too. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's uh, especially it's... all the machine gun fire upon it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, yeah. final, sh- like, showdown where it's just, it, it just becomes a Ray Harryhausen, like, 50s monster movie. Like, unabashedly, right. no different. Um, not even, like, winkingly. It's, it's like if you somehow got it's like somehow your mind the climax of that movie is somehow your mind decided to confuse Dragon Slayer with Prince of the City. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's like yeah, parts of it you watch it and you're like, oh this wow, is this Sidley, is like Abel, Sidley this is Metal movie for- again. Is this Abel Ferrara? Like, uh, who who did, like, oh, is this, like, some gritty, is this Fat City? Is this some, like, gritty crime story? It's like, no, 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 it isn't, because... It's a monster movie. It's a a crazy monster movie in which people's heads get plucked off. Save Fat City for next episode, please. Exactly, Fat City's next episode. Um, Um, You know, Cohen's work also had a very strong, obviously, political dimension, but he dealt uh, rather vividly with uh, class tension and racism. Um, early on, he did this movie called Bone, which I will say that I didn't quite uh, love it as much as I'd hoped because it starts out so great. Um, and it has a fantastic performance from Yafet Kodo, and it, it sort of um, kind of uh, approaches this whole idea of the way the you know upper class uh, deal with um, an African American coming into their yard, and th- there's just tons and tons of subversion after subversion throughout that entire movie, to where it became like just um, overindulgent with subversion. And by the end, as audacious as the movie is, the the film ends with a character speaking into the camera, a defense. And like I will say, I mean, we've been mostly positive. Uh, you know, sometimes Cohen for me. He, you can tell his movies are hastily thrown together, and sometimes they are just a mosaic of scenes rather than a satisfying whole. And some people might disagree with me on this one, but 
at times I also thought a little bit, um, especially with God told me to, which I know you'll disagree with Patrick. I thought of, I thought of Wes Craven because <laughs> like in terms of being chock full of great ideas and interesting scenes, it somehow lacked the follow through and for a satisfying climax. And it sort of just resorts to, okay, it's this crazy weird alien thing and the buildings collapsing. It, it, it felt lazy to me the way that movie ended. Well, I mean, I will agree with you 100% that his films feel more like mosaics of scenes than satisfying holes. Like, there, if there's one defining aspect of his films, like, is that they're kind of ramshackle. Like, oh, they're, yeah. again, they, they feel cheap. So to say to, – to, like, say that his films don't – like, they're, you know, they might be low budget, but they're not low budget the way, like, John Carpenter Assault on Precinct 13 is low budget where it's, like, a mean, lean, you know – like really tight exercise genre exercise. Like his movies just kind of go everywhere. That kind of goes back to Joe Bob's, what he was saying about uh, what he was saying about like his movies feel like one long scene. Larry Cohen's editing is so sharp and he so rarely establishes where and when you are like <laughs> and there are parts of it's alive where you're like, Oh, I guess it's been two weeks since the last scene, but you only know that when the scene ends and you don't understand what's going on. Like, right. Like, why is why is um all of a sudden the the mutant baby running around in the sewer system and he's in the L.A. River? Why is and, he in the school? <laughs> like, yeah, why is he in the school? Why the fuck did this baby develop hyper intelligence? Like, wh- like what? Wh- like this is this is like it, it's like look who's talking meets basket case. Yeah, I mean, the, the I think I think it's alive is i mean here's the thing i think it's it lives again is a well is a better put together monster movie but it doesn't work (laughs) so like it's alive also doesn't work but it's alive is this other weird strange thing yeah so it's alive you're like i mean i'll I'll, don't worry jim i'll get back to god told me to but i don't because I don't necessarily think you're wrong um, in what you said about God told me to. I just had a different feeling about it overall. Yeah, um, I definitely want to know more about it. I, there are people who agree with you, no doubt. So I'm yeah. just curious because I, I, I probably need to watch it again. Maybe I was just not in the right frame of mind. Like I went from thinking like, okay, there's going to be some more Larry Cohen movies that are like the stuff. And God told me to is very different. Yeah, there aren't any other other than like no. it's alive three, there's really not a, another Larry Cohen movie that's like the stuff. Right. So uh, this is something about God told me to that I want to address, and it was a pro. It was my opinion when I first saw it several years ago when I was in college, and it still stands as my opinion. It is a great, weird, disturbing procedural that I love the premise of. I love the way it's going. Yeah. And then the last. 20 minutes of that movie, it shits the bed. The surrealism goes up its own ass. I would agree. And well, When you say it goes up its own ass, you mean you can't follow it? or I can't follow it, and I don't like the fact that he gives in. I don't like that. And it's weird. It That, that much resonated with me so negatively that I had mis I had jumbled the twists of God told me to and Tenebre together. Huh. Oh, I don't I don't remember Tenebre so uh, Tenebre the twist is that the main character is the killer and I 
eat shit like that so much. Uh huh. Well, yeah, that's that, not the yeah, that's not the twist that God told me to. It's not, but it's it's sort of similar. Um, like I think that there there are scenes that are very effective, and it's a film that today, where you see a lot of mass shootings happening happening everywhere, it's even more relevant than it was in 1976. Oh um, yeah, that opening is phenomenal. You had the um excuse me one second I'm looking up the uh, it, you had things like Charles Whitman who uh who shot several people on the tower of I forget the university in Texas that it happened on. But that opening scene is Charles Whitman. Yeah. It's eerie and and disturbing and then you get to the part where Andy Kaufman is a police officer who goes nutsoid at the St. Patrick's Day parade and like the the build up and the reveal that it is a cult is great I just don't think it's executed the right way and the advantage of my favorite random killing sprees loosely connected investigated by a policeman movie goes to the hidden i would agree well targets oh yeah targets god damn it targets is is actually Ah. like the greatest possible movie on the subject and yes i will say god told me to is no targets targets is like an a plus masterpiece god told me to is multiple killers target has targets has one killer though okay and the hidden has multiple killers yeah the Hidden has multiple killers because it's an alien that jumps. That was one of my submissions on your bonus episode. And I okay. get torn to shreds and I cried for five hours. Oh, I'm sorry, baby. I'm oh. sorry. I, if it makes you feel better, I haven't seen it yet. I'll watch it. Dude, Maybe I'll love it. I highly recommend The Hidden. It's a yeah. great It's film. one of my um, favorites of that era. Yeah. We have, we have it a, in my store. So Kyle McLaughlin is so good in it. Yeah. And and it just like that concrete blonde song, and <laughs> that's got a Larry Cohen sensibility to it too. It totally like, does. Not, You're right. Like the weird, like the weird one-liners mm-hmm. and like the characters that it takes over. Like the whole section with Claudia Christian as the stripper is just insane. Yeah. They go to the strip club, and you think, <laughs> okay, it's like it's going to be a typical meet up in a strip club. It's definitely the best of the body that, jumping movies. It, it, she's got this enormous better than the bo- better than the borrower. You know, I haven't yes, seen the borrower in yes. years, but probably. And and I have a problem with some of the misogyny in the borrower. Yeah, no, and the borrower is not a great movie. It is misogynistic and weird. Uh, the borrower is unsettling. The hidden is fun, and I do not know why that movie was not as big as a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. For New Line. Well, like, it was directed by Jack Shoulder, who did Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Yeah, it's a great fucking movie. So there's a, so there's a pedigree for you. Of course. Uh, it's, no, I'm saying The Hidden is a yeah. great movie. Um, um, yeah. What I was, what I, but no, what I, I wanted to say about it was, and that's got another, like, I think that does what God told me to, was trying to do much better and in a pulpier way. Mm-hmm. It's a buddy cop movie. And it's noble and fun and just anyone who's listening to this, well, if you've not seen The Hidden, watch that movie. It let's, is a I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to hear Patrick's take on God Told Me To because I think he felt very strongly about it overall. 
I no, I God told me to is my favorite Larry Cohen movie. What? For sure. It is. It is. The stuff is really? amazing. The stuff is also amazing. But okay, Larry, good. but God told me to. I found effective in ways that the stuff could never dream of being, and I found it effective in ways that no other Larry Cohen movie could dream of being. I, I think everything you said about its strengths is absolutely dead on. That opening shot, like the thing that you never really say about Larry Cohen movies is they're beautiful looking because again they're cheap. So, was, but like that that shot of the of the shooter silhouetted on the water tower with the New York skyline. Like and it keeps returning to that shot all through that opening sequence. Like, yeah, beautiful, fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. It's so good looking. And then the silhouettes is a is is a is a thing that comes up in a lot of his films. There's a lot of of his movies that do have those backgrounds that you can see, but the silhouettes, you yeah, can't. shadows and silhouettes for sure. Yeah. Yeah, or in the case of It's Alive, it's like a necessity because the effects were so nothing. <laughs> right. um, but anyway, okay, so I like God Told Me To, and I'm, I'm saying this with the, with, the, with, the, uh, with the warning that I don't think God Told Me To is as good as Possession. But I like God Told Me To in the same way I like Possession. And to me, I get a very similar vibe to something like Possession or even The Brood, even though The Brood is a lot more, you know, kind of cold the way that most Cronenberg films are cold. But it's The Brood, the feeling of The Brood when you first watch it, you don't know what's going on, is all the way from the start to the finish, you're constantly like, what the fuck is going? Like, it gets crazier and more transgressive and weird. And there are just moments in The Brood of, of just like really, really sick, dark stuff, like when the teacher's getting murdered in front of the kids and stuff. And there's moments like that in God Told Me To. I, there is no more chilling, creepy moment in any Larry Cohen movie. No more affecting moment. There's, no, there's nothing in the stuff that made me laugh as much as this creeped me out. There's nothing in any of his movies that thrilled me the way this like got under my skin. But the detective is interviewing this father, and the father is very, very happy, and he just murdered his wife and children. Uh, oh, oh my! And, oh my God! Yeah. And the father. Okay, so the father. Yeah. So the the detective is asking him how he could do this, and the father takes this as a question of his method. And the father, with this smile on his face and this like detached bliss that you get when you're like high or something, like he just describes tra- like his. Okay, well, I shot my wife and my son, and of course, my daughter ran to the bathroom and wouldn't come out because daddy went crazy. Right, so and he mentioned. So I explained to her that it was all a trick, and we were joking, and mommy and the de- and the kid were okay, and it was a trick with the gun. And if she came out, I would. Sh- and like he calmly and methodically explains how he tricked his daughter into coming out of hiding so he could shoot her and kill her. And it is bone chilling. It's incredible. I it, would concur. It's scarier than anything that Kevin Spacey says in Seven. I, just- I was just going to say that seven is is something that the dna of that of god told me to is all over that film yeah okay so god told me to has those moments that i got it's not as good as targets but it had those feelings i got watching targets where just like my heart drops to the pit of my stomach and i'm like oh shit like this is really intense and really upsetting and getting under my skin in a really powerful way and god told me to has some like really 
for a Larry Cohen movie, it has some really shockingly good performances. Sandy Dennis from like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is in this as his uh, yep. mm-hmm. ex as his wife who ha- they haven't divorced and and she's amazing in it. And it's about and it's an actual story with a theme and it's telling a character. It's telling a story about a character who has an arc, which again is like most Larry Cohen movies are too ramshackle to really get around to doing. And you know, when you're watching something like Cue the Winged Serpent, you don't care because that movie is just has its own pleasures. But like God Told Me To really does have an interesting story about a man who's having a crisis of faith in the way that A Bad Lieutenant is a movie about a man having a crisis of faith. But the the ultimate what? Well, I mean, I think it just reaches a point where, uh, especially with the flashback to the alien spaceship, it reminded me of like almost like a 50s movie or something. Like, it just, I mean, at the well, same I mean, time. That, that flashback is shot like a 50s movie. Yeah, like, I, I, I guess are, that. And like, then, it's evocative of a 50s movie, but a 50s movie wouldn't have a close up of a human vagina. Well, that's as what I mean. Part of I was like, what the fuck? Why, why do we have an alien that vagina? Is, that's, that is a plus. That is so. That is the Larry. Okay, so Larry Cohen. The things that make his movies good, the things that make something like Q really good is that it is consistently surprising, right? God Told Me To takes this and it takes these sort of cinema verite style, like you know that they didn't get permission to shoot the St. Patrick's Day parade. So it literally is just them jumping into the street and shooting during the parade and it's got this weird vibe to it and it adds again to the sickness and to the creepiness of it that it feels so real and yet it's so surreal at the same time. It's got that um, weird uh, – what's what's the word? Uh, it's like weird conflicting tones. Um, I would agree uh, with that. Ju- juxtaposition. Like it's, okay, it's a okay. very weird juxtaposition that gives that movie a really crazy energy and it has scenes – like the like the scene with the detective and his wife played by Sandy Dennis, the first one, and it has scenes like the detective and the father explaining him killing. Like it has amazing scenes in it, and amazing moments of acting. This sure. the scene where the detective is confronting his mother, and his mother, and like it's it feels like a Cassavetes movie. Like that scene just feels <laughs> like like that is really deep. That idea of like why did you abandon me? And she's like, why did I abandon you? You ruined my life. How, it's like these two people who have been holding on to this resentment for so long, and it both explodes out in really upsetting ways for both of them that sends them both on like a course of self-destruction. Hers is you know much smaller. But like there are like that this this movie is so strong in the ways you don't expect Larry Cohen movies to be strong. It is definitely not as it's not as evocative as possession. It's not as interesting. As possession. Oh, the other thing I should say is that I knew it was about an alien. I knew what the twist was. Oh, I didn't. So once you I know, forgotten yeah. about the alien. Element. So I think if you watch it, knowing it what it is, and just accepting it, it really helps. Because I mean, I'm an atheist. So to me, God telling someone to kill and an alien telling someone to kill is equally sure plausible. Which is to say, it's, it's, it's equated. Ludicrous. I understand. Yeah, it's both ludicrous. Yeah, but what that. And then him finding out – so – and I don't want to spoil every part of it, but we just did, so that's fine. It's an old movie. Um, and, and again, I knew it was an alien going into it, and I loved it, so I don't think that kills your uh, affection for it. But um, this is a movie about a man who believes in God, a man whose faith in God is, is put into question by this series of unexplainable horrific acts. And then the answer that the man gets is not only there is no God – but you are God. Not only is there no morality, 
the only morality is what you can get away with, you can get away with anything because you are a god to these tiny ants. And that Ooh. is such that is such a fascinating transgressive message. Uh, it is it's like it's the same message that is in something like Crimes and Misdemeanors or other Woody Allen movies where it's like there is no absolute morality, there is no cosmic force that will punish you for what you do. Everything you do is just uh is just an amoral action in a in a chaotic universe. But on top of that, you actually have more power than everyone else. So in that idea of that fascist idea of might makes right and that idea that power is the only justifier, you have all the power. You have just your your faith in God has just has just been shattered and you have all the power in the world. What are you going to do with that? And that to me is an insane provocation. It's wow. so good. I didn't think yeah. of that. That's pretty and cool. I think that I mean there is things I don't like about the alien in this movie. I don't like that the alien is kind of queer and therefore is evil. Like yeah. the the detective is a very rough kind of masculine New York guy and the alien is a very queer uh transgender. Sort of, yeah, transgender person and then that's de- and that's like depicted as like oh they're evil they're they're the other they're creepy and like that is gross to me and but it's an exploitation movie so but didn't the alien about. want the cop to fuck him in his vagina scar am i or am i misreading that well yeah yeah I, I mean i also should say i love those scenes with the alien i love that yellow light to me that is such an interesting hmm. that and yellow you, light you're not ever given like what is the source of the yellow light is that alien yellow light coming from his pod that he lives in or is that a spaceship or, or is that from him like what is that yellow light you don't find out it's just like it enters this other like it's already kind of a surreal movie because because the events of the movie are so crazy, but the filmmaking style of the movie is so ver- verite and down to earth. Like it's already kind of surreal in that way. And then it kicks it up another notch. And then those scenes with the aliens are both surreal and transgressive. And to be fair, like I think that the ending isn't great because the ultimate result of, of him realizing that he is God is that he kills a gang member who is in one other scene. And that's kind of whatever, who cares? <laughs> Like again, this isn't this movie yeah. isn't this movie isn't perfect at all, um, and I'm not trying to say that it's like one of the greatest films ever made. But I think right. there's so much of it that is so affecting and so interesting and weird, and like parts of it are my God, I didn't think Larry Cohen could do this. But then there are other parts of it that's like only Larry Cohen could do this. If someone, <laughs> if David Cronenberg tried to make this movie, like David Cronenberg would make it look too neat and it wouldn't have that kind of nervy energy. It wouldn't like make you feel on edge all the time because David Cronenberg is too clinical a filmmaker. You need someone who is kind of improvisational. Like there are not just in this film, but in a lot of Larry Cohen films, there's moments where a camera will just kind of push into a character as they're talking. And you can tell that Larry Cohen just got a hair up his ass and decided it and just decided on the fly because sometimes even the actors respond a little bit. Like they got surprised. <laughs> like again, these are cheap, cheap, rough movies. Uh, but like there Good is just cheap, a, rough movies. I mean, yeah, yeah. even, even if I have problems with God told me to, and it could have just been, I wasn't absorbing it or I was too tired or whatever. It's definitely one that I bet I will. Now that I know what I'm in for, I might appreciate more on a second watch. At I, least. As being, I, I mean, Given that I knew what I was in for and that helped and and I loved it, like maybe that is the case, or maybe you don't like it. That's completely fair too. But uh, I I really love God told me to. Um, it's it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you're aware, 
that Robert Forster was the original choice. For oh, yeah. I, I would have liked that. They shot a couple days, and Robert Forrester couldn't stand Larry Cohen's style. <laughs> like, Robert Forrester was too professional an actor, and and Larry Cohen wanted more improvisation. He was just doing, like, I think the vibe I got was, like, Larry Cohen didn't like Robert Forrester. Robert Forrester thought Larry Cohen was a hack, so it didn't work out. But Forrester ended up in Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence. And was he was he in original Gangsters, too? I can't recall. I believe he is, which oh, I have wow. not seen. Yeah, I need to see that, too. To I, I'm curious yeah. about it. That movie's hard to find. Yeah, it is. It was on Netflix for a little bit, but it went off, and I'm, it's a shame I didn't get to it. Um, yeah, one movie I, I want to catch is the uh, is, is more serious, longer movie, but The Private Files of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, some critics oh, yeah. considered to be really good and intelligent. Was, seeing an like, a actual... Like serious film with Larry Cohen style, it could actually, it could, I could see it getting really tedious, but I could also see it being fascinating. Like yeah, a that's what I'm curious about. Style observation of J. Edgar Hoover it yeah. sounds interesting, and I'm looking at the cast. Michael Parks plays RFK in it. Huh. Uh, now you mentioned uh, Black Caesar was mentioned earlier, and. That was one that I caught on my tail end of watching all my... Pretty big fan movies. of that one. So yeah, you two like that movie quite a bit. Um, it's a great... You know, that one was a trendsetter. Um, uh-huh. I think without that film, you wouldn't have seen that boom in urban gangster films that we started getting in the 90s, like New Jack City and Juice. And oh, yeah. even... <laughs> Even De Palma's Scarface and King of New York, where you have a white protagonist, I don't think wouldn't have been, would have been impossible with Black Caesar. Black I believe Caesar it. is a very empowering film in the sense that it's got a lot of allegory in terms of of the African American rise to power and showing the the man that they're equal and your mm-hmm. interpretation of the Declaration of Independence is fucking bullshit. And even though that allegory involves organized crime, it's absolutely great. And Fred Williamson is so charismatic in both that film and Hell Up in Harlem, which is not a great film. It's it's a little more Cohen-esque in that it's a loose assembly of action sequences involving the character of Tommy Gibbs, whose character dies in Black Caesar, at least in the VHS and DVD versions of it. Uh, it was not originally that way. It originally ended with him getting shot in the street. Uh, really? He... Yes. Wow. It, interestingly enough, it was an, a, what they call an accidental director's cut, according to IMDb. Uh, it's a it's a very gritty, grungy film. I you know I prefer the Pam Greer American International uh, black exploitation stuff, but Black Caesar is important. It's every bit as important as a film like Shaft in terms of that movement of cinema. And I don't. I think it was mentioned somewhere that this felt like one of the first ones that was directed by a white guy. And Jack Hill, 
of course, directed stuff like Coffee and Foxy Brown. But Cohen directed that, and I think Black Caesar taps into a lot of that social commentary. Oh, yeah. I completely agree. And as much as I really love the shootout and the chase um, you know, of Tommy as, as after he's shot and all that, I think all that's really visceral and obviously very immediate and shot on the fly. I think the ending... I mean, talk about revenge, too. Um, the ending of this really got to me. Like, I mean, not the very end, but just the, the final confrontation with the cop, with the corrupt cop. Um, him smearing, you know, black shoe polish all over him after what so happened. Oh, God. it's It really affected me big time. I thought it was brutal and real and just, like, that's sort of where I got that, like, whole catharsis again. Actually, Hell Up in Harlem has a similar moment at the end where the villain gets strung up and lynched by... Oh, God. And he says the the eternal one-liner, I'm the first to hang a white guy. And I'm like, oh, my God! This is... This is... This is a fucking exploitation movie. Tarantino probably fucking loves this thing. I was going to say the the uh I so I didn't finish Black Caesar. I got pretty tired of it, but like what you're saying Jim about like him smearing shoe polish, like that to me is a Tarantino kind of revenge ending. Like that to yeah. me is like a like the, there's the difference between him smearing shoe polish on the police uh chief and and uh Lieutenant Aldo Ray carving a swastika into um, Christoph Waltz's forehead is pretty small. Like, yeah. it's, it's pretty much the same thing. No, you're, you're yep. right, yeah. You, 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 you're definitely onto something there. I think, actually, the things you're saying about how important it is and how influential it is is probably the reason why I couldn't get through it, um, because it just felt like a pile of gangster movie cliches I've seen a hundred times before, and because Cohen is not sort of a natural storyteller... I it just felt endless to me. Like I remember, so I was I was watching it, hmm. and at a certain point, I just lost even where I was because it was just like, okay, I guess we're here now. I guess, like it 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 is the way it is junky um, means that I can't really invest myself in this character arc the way I can, even in a junky even a junky movie like Scarface. The character arc is way more better defined and stuff. But, like, you're probably right, Scarface wouldn't exist without Black Caesar, or at least Scarface probably harkened back to Black Caesar in a lot of ways. But it's just, like, even you compare it to the movie that it is getting inspiration from, like Public Enemy or Little Caesar, like, those movies just have better characters to me. And so these movies, like, this movie, it just felt like a pile of cliches, and then it got to the point where he was shot in the street, and the music started playing, paid the cost to be the boss, and I was like... Okay, so that's the ending. That's how this kind of movie ends. Oh no! And then I, and then it was an ending. I was like, wait a second. And then I, I hit the info button on my DVD to find out how many more. And it was like twenty minutes left. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. That's my. And ending. I had, I had no clue that the boss by James Cam, uh, James Cameron. What the fuck is wrong with me? James Brown mm-hmm. came from that, and those songs are fucking awesome songs very good soundtrack they were definitely trying to do the isaac hayes and shaft approach on that but i think that did wonders for james brown in the end because i think 
Phil Collins reinvented his career for the 70s, and the payback, his 1973 album, is composed of music that he had recorded for Hell, Hell Up in Harlem. It was discarded because they didn't feel it matched the tone of the film, and they ended up going with Edwin Starr to do the music, who, all, who did great music for Hell Up in Harlem. But it, well, that was really, the thing. That was the thing in that early years of black exploitation was it's we're gonna have Isaac Hayes do the Shaft uh, soundtrack. We're gonna have Curtis Mayfield do the Superfly soundtrack. We're gonna have Earth, Wind, and Fire do bad, uh, Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Like that was the thing, and I agree. James Brown's work is really good in that as well. It's amazing, and you know he and he really not a lot of people know about this, but like the '60s, he had his golden age and then the seventies was that embracing that that black exploitation style and then you know you go into the eighties and then he re reinvented Living in America Exactly. Like he becomes the the emblem of Apollo Creed with that and uh that's not even there's a song on the album that that came off of called Gravity. That's really cool and gets used in a guilty pleasure of mine, the Gary Busey action film, Eye of the Tiger. And it's used in a scene where, I'm not kidding, Yafet Koto is flying a crop duster over the bad guys and throwing homemade bombs on them and screaming in only a way Yafet Koto could scream it. I love it! I fucking love it! I'm Mosley. I'm Mosley. <laughs> I'm Mosley. <laughs> by the way, I should have had him do that when I met him. A uh, lovely man, by the way, firm handshake. And he <laughs> signed my Alien Anthology Blu-ray alongside Michael Bean and Jeanette Goldstein a few months ago. Nice. Yes. Well, I will say this. I'm not an expert in black exploitation cinema by any stretch of the imagination. I've seen across 110th Street and Foxy Brown. Um, you know, there's there's a few out there that I, I I definitely recall being more goofy and entertaining. But it to me, it just felt like Black Caesar was important for its time. I will agree that you know his direction is uneven. It's not you know consistent in terms of pacing and stuff, but. I thought Fred Williamson was great. I thought, you know, the the chase was great and obviously the confrontation. It it makes it all worthwhile and I probably am bumping it up higher in my mind just because of how I felt with um the, right. the ending. The speaking yes, talking it out is really making me bigger up Black Caesar now that I'm I'm like really thinking more and more about it. I just watched it last night, you know. Um can what if, what else have we we not discussed yet that we wanted to discuss? I think Full Moon High. Full Moon. <laughs> I did not watch this movie. I like Full Moon High. It's it's not great, but it's it's a very much like Mad Magazine's take on I was a teenage werewolf. Like it has absolutely hundred percent a Mad Magazine kind of feel to it, and there's a lightness there's it's a lightness so to it that's silly. very it's very silly. There's parts of it that feel like He's doing a Woody Allen character, um, like an early Woody Allen movie, and then there are parts of it that feel like it's a trauma movie, <laughs> like oh, an early, uh, tra- yeah. early trauma movie, and it kind of goes back and forth. 
between those. It's not a great comedy by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it has great moments. Oh my god, the cast in this movie. I'm looking at it. Holy yeah, yeah. shit. It's on um, Netflix Instant. You've got Adam and Alan Arkin, both mm-hmm. in the film. Ed McMahon. <laughs> um, the legend himself, Jim J. Bullock. Yep. Prince Valiant. Oh my God! Bob Saget is in this. Is he yeah. really? I don't, who is Bob Saget? I must have missed um, him. Um, he was announcing at one point, I think. Oh, he was. He had like a couple lines in it. As, yeah, I missed and, him. And and Pat Morita's in it. Pat I Morita think you almost see Bob Saget's dick towards yeah, the beginning. Almost, you almost see Bob Saget's dick. That's totally. That's a that's a disturbing spoiler alert. Yeah, towards no, the beginning. Adam Adam Arkin actually proves to be a. Kind of a talent, like yeah. I'm not going to say he's on the level of so Michael like, J. Fox. Or, no, or, I'm going to say like John Cusack in Better Off Dead to like because Michael J. Fox wasn't in a movie like Full Moon High. Like yes, he was in Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf no, but Teen Wolf isn't doesn't have the sense of humor that Full Moon High does. No, no, it doesn't. It's Teen, Teen Wolf has the sense. Yeah, Teen Wolf has the sense of humor that like Weird Science does. It's a John Hughes riff. Right, exactly. And Full Moon High is absolutely Mad Magazine. I will definitely have to check this movie out now. I, yeah, I, it's, it's, I, it's got a lot of gym jokes. I'm it's, also seeing that Bill Kirkenbauer, the star of the famed Growing Pains spinoff Just the Ten of Us, plays oh, a character named... He plays a character named Flynn. Sure. I don't know uh, who that is, but... I got... Well, um... But it's you know it's you have to have a high tolerance for puns. dumb for dumb jokes. <laughs> There's not as many puns. I mean, and definitely the puns are not as bad as Jim's. Uh, Thank you. But like Jim, like Jim's puns are horrendous and upsetting. Thank you. That's but, why and, I do them. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for <laughs> contributing bad things to the planet. You know what oh. I was as I was watching uh, the Running Man. Uh, last night, I was thinking, like, oh my god, like, probably my sense of humor derives from The Muppet Show and Arnold Schwarzenegger's one-liners. The I Running don't... Man is... The Running Man and Commando are, like, neck and neck in terms of how many bad one-liners yeah. you give Arnold. Those well, are like, god. I mean, if you go outside of canon Arnold, the number one bad Arnold one-liner machine is Batman and Robin. Yeah, yeah. Like... <laughs> Chill that, out, dudes. That's the one that you could just build a nine-minute uh, montage. Cast a freeze. Like but that the, is Jim. Okay, so Jim thinks he is Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Running Man, but Jim is Arnold Schwarzenegger in Batman and Robin. Oh that man, best way I can explain Jim's sense of humor. Fuck. Yeah, uh, but like, The Running Man is is so it's so goofy and weird, and you know, I just like like. It, I think it has my favorite outside of the... No, okay. Outside of Terminator and Commando, The Running Man is the best use of Anbibak because of the response Richard Dawson has. <laughs> Only in a rerun! And you got Mick Fleetwood, of all people. in it. Mick Fleetwood! What the fuck? <laughs> and Dweezil Zappa? Yeah. <laughs> like... It's and and actually, I can do a pretty good impression of Jesse Ventura in anything, but in that movie, I I can do you know. Come on, show Captain Freedom what you're made of. 
It's it's not as good as other films where where there's funny lines like it's not it's not a sexual tyrannosaur which is the quintessential Jesse Ventura. Oh, that's the, that I've been quoting that for years. Yeah, but, there we go. Thank you, Jim. It took me a while. Sorry. I, I also, but the, the the other one I love is in Ricochet when John Lithgow first gets escorted into a cell. He's there. He's like, I know you. You got busted on America's Funniest Home Videos! And John Lithgow just looks at him. He doesn't fucking blink at that movie. He's just evil. He just goes, fuck yourself, cream cake. I floss with your wife's pubic hair. No, 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 no. That's not the line. It's, have you flossed? Yes, with your wife's pubic hair. Very good, thank you. Um, Let's talk about a couple more and wrap things up here. I know... um, we want to briefly touch upon some of the movies that he's written. I want to um, okay. I want to say a single thing about uh, "It's Alive," which I did not like. I don't think "It's Alive" is very good, but there is a, there is a thing in "It's Alive" that I've never seen before, outside of like maybe seven. But it's a way more interesting, less obvious version of it, which is um, in seven. The opening credits are John Doe making his notebooks and stuff and writing in them. And but when you're watching that movie for the first time, you don't know what you're watching until like towards the end of the movie where they find all the notebooks, and then you're like, oh, that's what that opening sequence was about. So it's kind of like a, uh. it, it's not like the thrust of the movie is those notebooks. It's not like okay, this opening sequence is establishing like the most important thing in the movie. It's just a thing that kind of sets up a tone, and then. And then it, when it happens, there's just a little pleasurable sensation in your brain where you go, oh, oh that was the opening. Cra- okay. Um, yeah. And I like that the baby is like the embodiment of every environmental and biological excess. Yeah. Perpetrated really, by the though. pharmaceutical. That, that, not really. Like they, that goes <laughs> nowhere. There's a single scene where two men walk down a hall. And I'm projecting. I'm projecting. I'm, no, but I'm saying like that's the problem with It's Alive. There is so much material to work with thematically about the fear of pregnancy, about the fear of being a parent, about like, oh my god, what if I my child has birth defects? What about this or about that? And it does nothing with them because it's about the two least relatable parents in the history of the universe, and it's so fucking bizarro. The movie, uh, it feels like there's a missing scene, because there's a movie, because the scene goes, every it's a normal pregnancy, and then there's 30 seconds of film in which all hell is broken loose, and then after 30 seconds has passed... Everyone has accepted the fact that there's a killer baby on the loose, and no one has a. There's not a single person in this movie that goes, "What are you talking about, a killer baby?" Everyone just accepts it. It's weird, but it's and I, if the rest of the movie was crazy in the way like Q is crazy, it'd be better. But ultimately, it doesn't do anything. But okay, the actual thing I want to talk about with "It's Alive" real quick is the "It's Alive" opens with just tons of dancing lights over the opening. Credits. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and you have no idea what the opening lights, what those lights are. It's just sort of a weird kind of esoteric opening the way that most uh, Larry Cohen films kind Loved of have it. opening credits over strange stuff. And then there's just, at the final end, there's a chase in the sewer where you see all the cops' flashlights and all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, like those all those lights, those were cops in the darkness in the sewer. And it doesn't add up to anything because the movie doesn't really do anything with any themes. So it's not like a great moment, but I, it's something that I wish I another filmmaker would like take that small thing and do it because I love that feeling. Me too. Because it was like the single. It was one of the most compelling shots in the whole movie. It's like really beautiful looking in the way. And that I also like Bernard Herrmann's score too. It's all right. It's a great. Yeah. It's a great score for the, him. 
the the uh, when they're in the sewers, the that piece of music where that kind of mixes electronic and mm-hmm. and the more classical stuff, that's good. The rest of it's kind of generic, I think, honestly. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit. Um, I know, Mike, you got a couple of titles that you want to mention. Oh, yes. I actually written. do have a couple of directorial efforts. And I, I want to go over his writing stuff, which is very important because he's written some high-quality stuff. Um, which one do you want me to do first? Uh, if you have any other stuff you directed, you just do that real quick before we get okay. to his writing stuff. Um, first of all, uh, he did a film in 1984 called Special Effects that I decided to check out. Heard mixed things. Words, words cannot express how weird this movie is. No. Larry Cohen? Eric Bogosian plays a filmmaker who's very loosely based off the stigma of 70s New Hollywood, like Coppola and Chimino going completely over the top and insane. And he makes what works we seem to imply are big budget pornos and he's pretty much playing the same character he played in talk radio <laughs> except for the fact that he's a filmmaker and oh, so, you, so, you're, so you're saying it's an eric bogosian performance that's exactly what I was <laughs> it is absolutely an eric bogosian performance and he's manic and crazy and zoe lund uh of Miss 45 fame plays an aspiring actress who gets sweet talked into sleeping with him. Little she was married to know. Abel Ferrara and died really young. Yeah. Little does she know that Hi, he wants to kill her and he does and he films it and he uses the husband who kind of looks like Eddie Redmayne <laughs> to, uh, star in the next film and it sort of becomes like an Abel Ferrara directed version of Body Double and it's weird and it's sleazy and I wanted to take a shower afterward uh, it, it's like it's like a Columbo episode in some ways because there's a cop who's constantly up Bogosian's ass and it's very unpleasant and the sex is very like matter of fact uh, and Bogosian is manic and fun, and I wouldn't be surprised if he improvised half the shit he was saying. The art direction is coked out, and the cinematography is lurid, and there's a lot of neon colors and a lot of darkness. And in the end, it almost feels like what Michael Mann would have made if he was a Grindhouse director. Oh. It's a wild movie. And, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the character Eric Bogosian plays, like, picture Barry Champlain from Talk Radio crossed with Cameron Mitchell in The Toolbox Murders. Right. I, I take your word for it. I don't know. Cameron uh, Mitchell in The Toolbox Murders. But it's, uh, uh, it's, Na- it's Nathan, like, Nathan Rabin described it. He's one of my favorites. He described it as Larry, Cohen, Larry Cohen doing Vertigo. Yes! What? He- absolutely has vertigo elements to it. Oh, I gotta see this. Yes, because Zoe Loon plays two roles in it. Oh, oh and my god. She has a horrible southern <laughs> accent, spoiler alert. Um, but it's very grungy in New York, and 
What's different about that one is that he shot in Brooklyn and in the in other boroughs than Manhattan. It's not really in Manhattan, so it's even grungier and sleazier looking. Like, like I said, it's a movie you want to take a shower after. Um, the The opening is you hear Eric Bogosian getting interviewed, and they ask him his influences. He's like. Abraham Zabruder, Honest Abe. And they're like, how do you spell that? He's like, J-F-K. I'm like, oh my God. Because Talk Radio is one of my favorite Oliver Stone movies. So hearing him go off about this, I'm like, okay, I'm going to love this movie. And then I see it and it's like, wow, this is weird. Somebody got a Bogosian boner. God damn it. All right. What else do you got for us here? Because I, I um, the only the I, only other one I want to bring up is phone booth, and I love yes. I love the concept. I just think Schumacher is way too showy with his direction. He it's just got like flourishes all showy, over. It's it's a little De Palma ish. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's good that he got a comeback with stuff like that in the early two thousands. He also wrote Cellular, and he wrote a movie that I. I was meaning to see that is directed by Sidney Lumet, Guilty as Sin, with Don Johnson and Rebecca De Mornay. And the idea of that is just like like Lumet directing Larry Cohen doing yeah. a courtroom thriller. I gotta see this movie. Um, the other film is very similar to special effects in that it's what I consider slasher noir. You have elements of a slasher film, and you also have elements of, like, a detective thing Procedural. going. So, Manhunter, Silence of the Lambs, uh, Seven, Jack's Back, those are all examples of it. And The Ambulance is also a slasher noir. Basic premise is, Eric Roberts writes for Marvel Comics. That's a premise? He li- <laughs> It's the premise of his character because he literally works for uh, he works for Stan Lee. Stan Lee plays himself in it. It's like the first Marvel movie. Except it's not because It exists in the the Mallrats universe. (laughs) Yes, it, it probably yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. Basically, what happens is an ambulance, like an old-style ambulance that looks like the Ecto-1, keeps <laughs> drugging people and picking them up, and it ends up in a conspiracy involving diabetics. And it's weird because it straddles this line between dark comedy and horror, and you don't. And it's very similar to the Maniac Cop films. It's very tongue-in-cheek, and... Uh, the way it straddles the line, I'm not referring to Eric Roberts' enormous mullet in this film. Um, you have Jill Jones as this old teeny cop in a hat and a gray suit, and he talks about a nervous breakdown that he had, and he never explained it. He got the old-time snub-nose revolver. It's just... It's so weird and crazy, and I don't want to give much away, but the lighting is insane. You can tell that he's taking a lot of pointers from William Lustig on the Maniac Cop films. Sure. And that's a movie that feels like a nightmare. That's where the Joe Bob Briggs quote came from. Uh, 
I believe, was his so, review of that. Yeah. So, so okay. So real quick, um, you wanted to talk about the Mania Cup movies, and then we're, and then we'll give our top threes. And I, I want to, and I want to, before I do mention Mania Cup, I do want to mention a couple of films. Um, I, the Jury, his adaptation of the Mickey Spillane, Mike Hammer mystery with Armando Sante and his chest hair. Uh, he was going to direct, but was fired when he went over budget in the first few days. Uh, it was it was a big studio film. It should have been a, it would have been a franchise, but it didn't do well. It's lurid. It's sleazy. Um, it's actually there's it's like dark and sleazy, like ten to midnight or something like that. But then it'll become gonzo weird and have slapstick like a Roger Moore James Bond movie. And it's a conspiracy that involves the CIA and Vietnam and mind control and a sex commune. And I would say that Doc Sportello would accept a case like this and get completely confused huh. immediately. It's a, it's a weird one, and it's one I recommend. Um, but the one that I really fucking love and loved even more watching it again is Best Seller, directed by John Flynn of Rolling Thunder and Out for Justice fame. No relation. I didn't. Th- um, I was okay with this one. I I, uh, I thought it was uneventful. It. It's like it's it's like a buddy cop movie for thinking people. All right. No uh, James Woods in that era. Every great. Is, is great, and he's so good in this. The moment that he gets where he kills the guy in the photo booth, and you just see him uh-huh. walk in, and you see the photos come out and slitting his throat. Holy fucking shit, that's amazing! And Brian Dennehy is so conflicted and angsty, and the two of them have this unconventional eccentric chemistry, and it's got a lot of unpredictable violence, and Wood's performance is so manic, and you put that up against Salvador and Cop, and you've got a great, great movie. Uh, bestseller. It's coming out on Blu-ray from the fine folks at Olive Films, and it's also streaming on Netflix. If you've never seen this movie, watch it. Sorry. And that brings me to Maniac Cop. Love sure. Maniac Cop. Um, Patrick, I know you think the second one is the only good one. I, I haven't seen that. the third. I haven't seen the third one, but yes, the third one's not good. The yeah. third one is is a wasted opportunity. The second one is great. But I will say that it's a better series than the other. William Lustig franchise, spearheaded franchise, Relentless. But that's another day. Um, Maniac Cop is scary. Again, super relevant right now. The idea of a psycho cop killing people. When I saw psycho- when I when I saw Maniac Cop two with uh, in theaters with a Q and A with Lustig, Lustig said they were trying to get a remake off the ground. I have been hearing about that. Um, yeah. Maniac Cop two, the third act of that is an R-rated Batman the Animated Series episode. Like, you have Robert Davi as Batman, Claudia Christian as Robin, and then Leo Rossi is, I guess, the Joker. <laughs> and the the bad cop is Two-Face, and they're trying to break out Bane, who is uh, Cordell. Uh, but Maniac Cop is just it's scary. It's lurid and atmospheric, and it bleeds, bleeds atmosphere. And Tom Atkins and Bruce Campbell are so apt at what they do that it, it's a 
it's one of the best slashers of that era, and that's another slasher noir. And I think that makes a good double feature with the ambulance. Excellent, man. I I just personally I don't think it's a good slasher. I mean, but then again, the things I like in slasher movies tend to be very specific, and Maniac Cop definitely doesn't have them. So personally, I think Maniac Cop one is a kind of a lame slasher movie, and Maniac Cop two is a fun action horror movie, and that's why I prefer it's the a comic book come to life. Maniac. Right? Yeah, I think Maniac Cop two has some great stunts in it, and it's got a great fire stunt at the end, and it's just it's got good action in it. As opposed to the first one, which is just kind of a bad uh, slasher. The car chase is really fun too, with the with the handcuffs. Oh, that yeah, that's great. That's like it's a really great, great scene. insane and fun, and it, they're completely different movies. And the third one is is not good. It, there's just too much going on. Yeah. That's all I can say. I, I I sort of blocked it out of my mind, and it it wastes a great supporting cast. Like you've got. You've got Jackie Earl Haley in it. You've got Paul Gleason. Um, Forster's in it. Uh, Grandel Bush, Little Johnson from Die Hard. The reunion happens. Oh! Uh, yes! Wow. Yeah, it's... It's, um... But it's... It's not a very good movie. Also, Larry Cohn directed a movie called Perfect Strangers, and no, Larry and Dalkey are not involved. That's too bad. Terrific. Um, I'm also a fan of the Body Snatchers with Abel Ferrara directing. I, I don't really good. like it. I think it's it's, okay. it's a bungled opportunity, but I think that the studio compromised it. I wouldn't be surprised by that. There should be and a director's I, cut of it. I really think, that, and um, Stuart Gordon was supposed to direct that. That yeah, be, that, that's a good match. I could see Stuart Gordon and Larry Cohen working well together. Stuart Gordon came so close to so many big movies. He almost did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Ooh. When it was under the dubious title Teeny Weenies. I'm not making that up. That is, You are not lying. That is a dubious title. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Top three, boys. Are right. we allowed to do writing gigs? No, top no. Three. Top three directed. Uh, all right. So I can go first. Uh, my number three is uh, Hugh the Winged Serpent. My number two is The Stuff. Um, I think those two are very close, though. On certain days, they might switch places. And my number one is God Told Me To. Um, my number three... Oof, I'm going to go with Black Caesar until I rewatch God Told Me To and see if I like it more. Um, and number two is Cue the Winged Serpent. And no surprise, number three is The Stuff. Your number one is The Stuff. Oh, sorry. Number one is The Stuff. The Stuff. Yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. I've watched a lot of Larry Cohn movies. I've watched nine Larry Cohn-directed movies in the past two weeks. Damn. And I've also watched other ones, but uh, top three, number three, Black Caesar. It's really fucking good. Number two, the stuff. Number one, I I, I got to go with Q for the for the number one spot for me. But I do want to give a special honorable mention to bestseller. 
because I, I think that movie's fucking great. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Awesome, guys. This was a fantastically fun discussion. Had a blast. Yeah, it's fun. This is great. <laughs> wow. I know. It was so good. Hey, Jim, what is the fantastic have a blast discussion we're going to have next time? Oh, my God. Patrick, I cannot be more excited to talk about an older director. His name is John Houston. Yeah. I oh, am yes. a fan. You may know him as the lawgiver from Battle for the Planet of the Apes. That's probably how you know John Houston. Exactly. That is probably yeah. his number one. Like when you go on IMDb and it says what he's from, it probably says John Houston, actor, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. But, but seriously, a career-spanning Maltese Falcon to Sierra Madre to Key Largo, African. There's so many fucking legendary movies. African Queen. It's going to be a lot of work. Oh, my God. He's going to need a two-parter, I bet. He's, yeah. he's got a lot. Sure. There's Yeah, he's, he's an important one. We're going to have two guests for that one. Um, live in studio, we'll have Nat Amaral. And via Google Hangout, we're going to have Zach Batante. That's a, that's a fun, fun little plug for the Google Hangout service. Google, Google Hangout, because Skype is shit. Exactly. <laughs> so we're going to have a great time with uh, that director, I'm sure. Sure. And um, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some sweet bonuses coming your way real soon. Yeah. Yeah, there will be. In the meantime, where can we read more from Mike Flynn? Uh, well, I've been on a uh, boat trip to... China in the past year with Cuba so. Gooding Jr. You can read some of my works on my Facebook. Add me if you hear this. Add me. Many people have added me as a friend from this podcast. Uh-huh. Um, you can also read me at thepleasuredome.wordpress.com. I haven't written a lot in a while, but um, there's some there's some good stuff on there that I think you'll enjoy and. If you've ever seen the movie Cocktail, and I pity you if you enjoy it, I think you will enjoy my 4,000-word dissection of that film. Wow. Oh, yeah, I read that. It's good. And you're on Twitter? I am on Twitter. You can follow me at Mike Drew Flynn. You can, you can follow Drew me. Drew War. Hmm. Um, you can follow but, me at yeah. uh, Instant Jim. And oh, are we doing this now? We're also... Uh, Where are we, Jim? I'm at Letterboxd at Instant Jim, too. Oh. Mm-hmm. There, what, is that thi- what is that thing called? People, they get like pleasurable sensations watching YouTube videos? <laughs> like There's unboxing. apps, too, where people talk to you like that. Yeah, the, where, like, yeah, they watch the unboxing videos and they like feel like waves of pleasure on the top of their head. What is that called? TLRD or, or whatever? That's too long, didn't read. Okay, it's a different acronym. Um, but at any rate, for all of you folks out there, I'm at Patrick Rapole on Twitter. I'm Patrick Rapole on Letterboxd. And I have a new album development blog called Patrick's New Album. 
dot wordpress dot com. Check that out. You can find us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Okay, we went to a different place there, too. That's like a threatening phone call. Like, <laughs> I'm going to chop her up into little pieces. You're never going to see your fucking daughter again. What's your favorite scary podcast? There you go. Was she a great big fat person? Yeah, very perfect. <laughs> yeah. That was actually, that was actually a of all the impressions you've done so far, Mike, that was the best one. Was yeah, really it cool. was. Well, it's it's a good Ted Levine thing. I it, mean, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. It's almost like you <laughs> sound you like edited your voice. So hard. Put a pitch shifter on it. That's worth there it. Are, there are video there are multiple videos of me that exist of me singing goodbye horses. <laughs> there we go. No, That's right. I do not go that far. I hope you talk. No, I don't even mention it. I okay. do it for fun, and I do it to see what people think. Yeah, sure. Well, and you can see what people think about our podcast over at iTunes. <laughs> um, if you want, Harry, that was a great segue, Jim. We're we're all doing great work here. Yeah, please leave us a review at iTunes. Yeah, Give us it, five it, stars. It, it actually... So get Six stars. It, yeah, believe it or not, getting reviews and ratings on iTunes helps other people find the podcast. Yes, sir. Um, and we've gotten a lot of reviews recently. We've gotten a lot of good emails at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com that we appreciate, we love. I try to respond to every email we get. Um, and I just respond to the ones that are addressed to me. Yeah. Because I'm a narcissist. Yeah, no, that's fire. So thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been a great episode, as always. And uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks for John Houston. Isn't that right, Patrick? That is right, Jim. All right. I love you so much, Patrick. I love you, Jim. And it was an utmost pleasure to return to the Director's Club with you guys. This is the most fun that I've had on the show yet. And we, I look we, forward to more. We love you, Mike Flynn. We love you, Mike. Let's end every episode now with We Love You, Mike Flynn. (laughs) Go away, evil dream. Leave my baby alone. Can you say that again? Now that I'm recording. Yeah, sure. I said <laughs> no, but swallowing what was in my mouth. No, it's too late now. Okay. Damn it. Are we all here? We are all here. Yeah. All right. Larry Cohen.